燃え上がれガンダムそして、ガンダムは非常に面白いです。そして、ガンダムは非常に面白いです。そして、ガンダムは非常に面白いです。そして、ガンダムは非常に面白いです。そして、ガンダムは非常に面白いです。そして、ガンダムは非常に面白い
um, touchstone and like kind of turning point in the history of the franchise. And it's definitely one is think it's one of the Gundams we have talked most about without actually doing an episode on it. Cause I feel like in the nineties Gundams, we referenced Stardust memory a lot, even though we hadn't actually done an episode on it. Yes. Very necessary to finally be doing an episode. Yeah. So I'll just say really quickly for listeners, um, cause I have over the last, it's been about two months since we had a weekly suit Gundam. And I have gotten so many messages, more than we've ever gotten on the podcast about where the next episode is. Um, and we've been podcasting for, you know, 10 years now. Um, not all on Gundam, obviously, on lots of other things. Um, and the basic answer is just when this, this podcast is coming out is September. Uh, Sean is a public school teacher. Mm-hmm. I am a... Um, graduate student um phd candidate at a university um that means that we were doing like basically dealing with beginning of semester stuff and we're very busy uh especially amidst the coronavirus pandemic and a lot of weird shit going on in the world that is the short answer yeah it's yeah basically and if you people want more detail they can go and listen to some of the weekly stuff podcasts that have come out um where we talk about that stuff in more detail but yeah the long and short of it is like um i think i had personally underestimated the quantity of additional work that um i would have because of the different kinds of accommodations around uh being a public school teacher during covid and like the changing schedules there's a lot of like really complex technical stuff that happened that then resulted in me now like having what is maybe like I would say probably like a 33 to 50% increase overall in workload, which includes like I, I have an additional class that I teach compared to normal. I have probably about 40 to 50 more students than I had last year. Like it's a lot of additional work. Uh, so that is why we're doing this now is that like now I have like been able to create routines and things um, that allow me to sort of deal with that in a way that's more normal and not as time consuming. But it took a long time to get to the point where we could do that. So that's why this took a while to record because I wanted to be able to record this uh, like the last week of August was when I wanted to do this podcast in my head where I was like, oh, I think we'll be able to do it then. I think I'll have to like, you know, to take a one week, extra week off to kind of get used to as we're going back to work. And then like, nope, that definitely was not uh, a, a thing that would have been possible to do. I mean, it's been delayed a couple times because the last one was mid-July. And I remember us specifically saying, do you want to start us memory next week? Oh, let's give it two weeks. And... <laughs> And then, like, it wasn't just that, like, a bunch of crap happened in our lives. Also, just there's been a lot of news. Obviously, on the Weekly Stuff podcast, we cover a lot of gaming. And there's been a lot of gaming news and things like that. And it's just there was never time to do it justice. And I'm glad we waited and can do it justice. Because also, my original plan when we were going to do it back in July was, since I had seen the OVA so recently, I saw it last summer, I was just going to watch the recap movie. Um, but because of the delay, I watched the full 13-episode series again, and I'm very glad I did that, because it actually gave me a uh, a more positive uh, feeling on Stardust Memory overall, and a more nuanced look at what I think is, is good and bad about it. So, I think this is going to be good. Yeah, me too. Alright, do you want to give us our normal history lesson before we, we dive into the uh, the nitty-gritty of Stardust Memory? Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's really not a huge amount to talk about. Like, I think it's, it has one of the, like, least kind of remarkable production histories, at least in terms of stuff that I've been uh, managed to find. Like, I went digging around on the Japanese internet as usual, and there's just not a lot of details out there. Um, but, like, long and short of it is that uh, War in the Pocket was very successful. It was popular. It sold really well. Um, and so then Sunrise saw that. It was like, okay, let's continue with this OVA train. Um, I mean, and not just War in the Pocket. Like, generally speaking... 
this period of the late 80s to the early to mid 90s was really fruitful for the OVA market in particular. Um, that's one of the things that EVA is actually most credited for in terms of its influence on anime it isn't just a stylistic thing. It's a business thing that EVA in the mid 90s kind of helps create a market for these kinds of shows to then be aired on TV rather than sold separately as they had been for several years as OVAs. But yeah, so this is the second uh, OVA series for Gundam. It airs from May 23rd, 1991 to September 24th, 1992. Uh, it's 13 episodes, generally sold in two episode chunks. Um, and it was sort of designed as uh, a kind of interquel, in, to use a word that doesn't actually exist, but we sometimes say, um, which is a something that exists between Mobile Suit Gundam and Zeta Gundam. So the 0083 in the title refers to where it takes place in the timeline. So it's a few years after uh, the one-year war ends, but a little bit before the Titans and Camille and all that stuff that you get in Zeta Gundam. And it's I believe we call of, it the Grips Conflict. Yes, the Grips Conflict or the first Neo-Zeon War or, you know, or the beginning of the first Neo-Zeon War, however you want to talk about it. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's set in that kind of interquel period. Uh, featuring, like with 0080, one of the sort of mission statements was to not use new types or any of that kind of stuff and to do a more kind of grounded military-style story in the Gundam universe. Um, and that's kind of what they set out to do, and that's basically what they did, and how successful they were uh, is, is up to you, the viewer, to kind of judge the quality of it. Um, but I think what is not up to, I think just an independent uh, person just deciding whether or not is good about it, is the animation. Uh, so it had an extremely high budget. Uh, it, at the midpoint of its production, it was decided that they were going to do a movie kind of recap thing. So the second half has even higher budget uh, animation because it was effectively like being designed to be rolled into the movie and shown in movie theaters. Uh, and so it, it is one of the most kind of like lusciously produced uh, Gundam series. And then it is a spectacle in that sense. In terms of the uh, staff behind it, it is split. And this is the same thing that happens with 08th MS Team, the next OVA series. Um, it is basically split in half in terms of the director duties. So the first half of the series, episodes one through seven, are directed by a woman named Mitsuko Kase, one of the first women, um, like major directors on a Gundam project that's not just an episode director, but directs like a significant chunk of a series. So she directs the first half. Um, she and most of the people who work on uh, Stardust Memory really come from the Vodums side of things. So she worked on the original Armored Trooper Vodums and several of the OVAs that had been coming out at this point. Uh, so she directs the first half. And then a man named Takashi Imanishi directs the second half, episodes 8 through 13. And both of them obviously also are like work on the show as a whole. But in terms of the directorial duties, it's split that way. But they also do storyboards and stuff like that for all the whole show. Um, and Imanishi also not quite as kind of um, big a career as Mitsuko Kase had, but also is a Bottoms guy, worked on Bottoms, worked on several of the OVAs. Uh, and sort of script work, uh, I, I, there's two uh, screenwriters that worked on this that I think are notable to pick out. One is Hyunori uh, Gobu, who did f uh, the first four episodes. He is the main ser series composer for G Gundam, so he would go on to work on G Gundam. Um, and he had also, he was a big bottoms dude. Same thing with Aside Okuma, who did most of the episodes in the second half. Also a big bottoms guy. He did the five episodes in the second half of the show. And then there's one storyboard person who I was utterly shocked to see this name. And it's amazing to me, as I had absolutely no idea that this dude worked on this. Uh, Shinichiro Watanabe did the storyboards for episodes 3, 6, and 10. Uh, and if you don't recognize that name, you probably recognize the name Cowboy Bebop. 
because he's the dude who made Cowboy Bebop, uh, Samurai Champloo, Space Brothers, and a bunch of other really great shows. And I had absolutely no idea he worked on this. And when I was looking up the credits, I saw his name. And I'm like, it, they can't mean that Shinichiro Watanabe, can they? And no, they 100% is that dude. Um, he I, storyboards for three of these episodes. I have my Cowboy Bebop, my new steel book right here. Uh, came out last week of the complete series, and this is just a nice little steelbook package. So I have actually never seen Cowboy Bebop, but I'm excited to watch it, um, in part because of the Sunrise connection. But actually, that makes sense that he did those, because actually, episode 10, I have in my notes right here, is one of the best uh, animated, boarded, everything episodes of the series. Um, so that's kind of cool. Three, I mean, you said 3, 6, and 10. I'm like, yeah, I actually really like yeah. all three of those mm-hmm. episodes. Um, so those are three of the standouts in Stardust Memory. So that's very cool. Yes. And this it's also worth noting, this is a period when Gundam just isn't on TV, you know, um, yeah. because uh, Double Zeta ended in, what, 89? Uh, no, before that. It would have been earlier, no, 87. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, sometime but, around there. Yeah, and then you had uh, Char's Counterattack in the late 80s. You had uh, F-91 in 92, I think, what is when that came out. So, like, and then um, Victory Gundam is the next one that's on TV in 93, right? 93 to 94? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 93. Yeah, and so this is like a four or five year period where Gundam just isn't on TV, but it's still a very active period. You have the two big movies, you have three OVA series, um, and this is one of those. Um, I think you noted that the movie that came out, the movie is called The Afterglow of Zeon, and that is the the Stardust Memory recap movie. But it's also like, if you look at that, I have not watched that movie in whole, but I kind of jumped around in it. And it's kind of weird, because it basically just omits the first episode, and Nina narrates it. And then it like goes through the first half of the series very fast, and it's primarily there to show the last two episodes of the OVA because those were actually not out on yeah. like tape when um, it was shown in theaters. So like it was like a big theatrical event to go see the end of Stardust Memory, which kind of is sad because the end of Stardust Memory is by far the worst part of Stardust Memory. Um, um, but you can tell the animation, yeah. I mean, there's some stuff like Episode Ten, the big fight between Ko and Gato. I would pay to see that on the big screen. That'd be pretty cool. So, yeah, there you go. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So it is, yeah, and I, that was what I was going to mention is, yes, the movie did come out before, like, it was like a month or so before the last two episodes released on Laserdisc or VHS, um, which I would love, I would love, I have no Laserdisc player, but I would love to own these OVAs on Laserdisc because it just seems fucking rad. It seems like, rad. Laserdisc love... seems like the medium you're supposed to own AV- OVAs on to me. Yes, well, absolutely, because part of it is that OVAs were there for like the higher animation value, right? And Laserdisc yeah. had Laserdisc had very high quality. It was an analog um, format that was essentially lossless, so um, it was really cool. But yeah, um, do we want to dive into talking about the show itself now? I think we can dive into talking about 0083 Stardust Memory. So yeah, so like with War in the Pocket, this is slightly different from our usual Mobile Suit Gundam MO in that uh, we have both already watched it. So, Jonathan, I want you to give like a kind of recap of what your feelings were the first time, and then how have they, broadly speaking, changed on the second viewing? So, yeah, so I've had a complicated relationship with this show because I watched Stardust Memory in my first blush in my honeymoon phase of Gundam fandom when Gundam and I were just rolling around in the sheets day and night all the time. I think that was the period last summer, Sean, where... I very dutifully went through the original Gundam with you slowly and didn't go past any of like like marker points you laid down so we could do those six episodes on original Gundam. Mm-hmm. And then when we had finished those episodes and I had I had seen, you know, Char and Amuro have their fencing fight and all of that and, and Char blowing off Kaecilia Zabi's head and I had finished the original series, 
Then I went on a fucking bender and I watched everything from the one year war phase. So I watched everything. I watched 8th MS team. I watched war in the pocket. I watched Gundam, the origin. Um, I watched Gundam Thunderbolt, just everything I could get my hands on. I was reading the manga. Um, I then jumped ahead and did Zeta Gundam and I did Zeta Gundam so fast. You were like getting whiplash. Um, because then we did our Zeta Gundam episode kind of out of the blue. Uh, and then I did wind up watching Stardust memory in between Zeta Gundam and double Zeta. Um, and Stardust Memory was interesting because it was the first time I felt like I kind of hit the brakes. It was the first time where, like, I still watched it pretty fast. I watched it in a couple days. It's only 13 episodes. But, like, it was the first time where I was like, oh, this is a Gundam thing I do not head over heels love. And, you know, I remember there were things I liked in the first, like, half of the series. I remember being very lukewarm on the second half and then hating the ending and I had kind of made fun of Stardust Memory a lot over time. And I think I'd even said that it was my least favorite Gundam um, at certain points through everything we had seen. Um, watching it again, I would amend some of that. It was, I think, watching it again, for one, this is the longest break I've taken in watching Gundam since we started watching Gundam. Was uh-huh. after finishing Turn A, I just, um, we did the War in the Pocket episode. But after rewatching War in the Pocket, which I watched in one night... I've been doing lots of other stuff. I haven't actually watched that much anime at all. Um, I've just been watching other things. And so I'd been away from Gundam for a while. And coming back to Stardust Memory, there was a little bit of that, like, coming into a warm, comforting bath. Because even even lesser Gundam is Gundam. And it's, like, nice to be in it. But also, it allowed me, I think, taking it out of the context of everything else. Because also, like, on the internet, Stardust Memory is weirdly hyped as, like, the Zeta Gundam prequel. And I think that is an unfair expectation to place on it. That is not what this show is doing. If you are going in expecting a detailed origin story of the Titans or like the state of the world in Zeta Gundam, that's just not what it's interested in. And that's not what it delivers. Um, So like watching it without any of those expectations, I definitely enjoyed it more the second time. A lot more. I think there is a lot of really, really good stuff in uh, Stardust Memory. I think it has a couple of like standout episodes that are just some of my favorite Gundam half hours. I think the second episode of the series where they are pursuing Anavel across Australia is just a phenomenal, just meat and potatoes Gundam episode. Um, I think there are other standouts throughout um, episode eight, which is the one where Lieutenant Burning dies. I mean, they telegraph it as hard as it is possible to telegraph it. And I still think it is a kind of great Gundam death. Um, episodes 9 and 10 I think are probably the peak of the entire series which is where Annabelle just goes crazy as the Nightmare of Solomon and then in episode 10 you get the big fight between um, Gato and Ko which is one of the best fights in all of Gundam the the animation is fucking incredible Um, so there's a lot of standout episodes I think um, this was true the first time I watched it it's true now I think Annabelle Gato is one of the great Gundam characters I think Akio Otsuka is incredible in that part and I, I still kind of just wish this show was about him and not about all the other stuff. Um, I like the voice performances throughout. I really like Ryo Horikawa as a, as a young, wide-eyed Gundam boy, um, which is funny because we all know Ryo Horikawa as Vegeta, who is not a young, wide-eyed anything. Um, you know, so I enjoy that. Obviously, we will talk about this at length. The animation in Stardust Memory is just consistently jaw-dropping. I love the music. Um, Stardust Memory does have probably... My favorite set of Gundam theme songs other than Zeta. Um, I think the two openings and two endings for Stardust Memory are incredible. And the winner in particularly, the first opening is... It would be in like my top five Inner Circle Gundam songs. It's so mm-hmm. fucking good. Um, so yeah, there's all of that. And But then... 
there's really I can summarize my problem with this show in two words. And those two words are Nina Purpleton, who I do think is the worst character in all of Gundam. Bar none, Mm -hmm. I have not seen a worse character. She is a holistic, top-to-bottom disaster of a character. This show's entire gender politics are fucked in a way that is really distinctly unique from how Tomino wrote women in the other Gundam shows. And I think sadly set a precedent for stuff like Gundam Wing, and as I understand it, some of the 2000s Gundam in how it deals with women. Uh, And I think all of that is bad. And I also think it face plants so hard on resolving the story of Ko in the final episode and the entire rival pilot schema of this show. I think the final two episodes are just bad. They are confused. They are poorly written. They are just boring. They are a shuddering anti-climax. And I think that's what brings Stardust Memory down for me. I don't think it's the worst Gundam. I actually like this quite a bit more than Gundam Wing. Gundam Wing is my least favorite Gundam. Um, but I do think this is the weakest of the Universal Century Gundam stories. But I don't want to like wallow in that because I do think Stardust Memory has quite a bit worth recommending it, and I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it on second viewing. Interesting, yeah, because I feel like I share some of your opinion on how you've kind of come around more on it, but I don't think I'm um, as positive in those ways. Like, my memory of Stardust Memory was... I realized upon rewatching it entirely, I remembered the first two to three episodes. I remembered the ending because it's hard to forget what to do with the ending with how fucking out of nowhere and bad it is. And I vaguely remembered some of the stuff in the middle section where Ko like deserts and then he finds Kelly, um, which is actually like one of my favorite moments in the whole thing. We'll talk about the weird choice they used to use the ending theme magic over a montage between those two. That is maybe the most homoerotic thing in all of Gundam and I was like stunned upon rewatching it. I had a vague impression of that whole sequence in the montage on rewatching it. I'm like, man, did they know what they were doing when they made this? Because it is pretty great. Um but other than I mean, that, every all the connective tissue I had like totally forgotten about this whole show. Yeah, sorry, all I was gonna say is one of my notes is um in the this is sort of top Gundam, top gun Gundam, this yeah. needed more latent homoeroticism, and you do get that in the episode with Kelly. So like that's where you get the much needed latent homoeroticism to make this top Gundam, but it needed more of that. Yeah. But sorry, yeah, but so, go on. Yeah, so and yeah, and I definitely remembered it being like it is the top gun Gundam. It is like the most like sort of military dude Gundam. Um because you know, there's no new types. Ko, while he is young and inexperienced, he's like 19 he's not 15 years old right he's not a gundam boy he is a maybe a gundam he's a gundam young adult right yes like kind of where he's at um and so i like had some of those vague impressions of it uh but i hadn't watched it since like 2015 or whenever i would have originally gone through all these like like maybe mid 2016 when i was watching through gundam originally and i just never gone back to this the way i had with the movies and the way i had with the other ovas because they're very consumable um, and so upon rewatching it, I was just kind of surprised about how much detail I had forgotten about all the individual episodes. And it kind of makes sense to me that I would have lost that because I think while the Stardust memory, other than some of the stuff at the end, um, is never does anything that I would really categorize as being bad. I think it often in a narrative sense is fairly uninteresting. I think it like, it doesn't really know, I think what it wants to do in a thematic sense. It doesn't really know what want, what story it wants to tell. Um, and because of that, it ends up just feeling like 
it feels like the story ends up being really nihilistic almost on accident. It doesn't feel like they're doing a story where there's like, where that's about nihilism or is about how ideology doesn't like means nothing in the face of systems or whatever it is that the show like kind of lands on. Um, Like I have a hard time sort of precisely figuring out what the show is trying to do or trying to be, because it feels like it shifts in weird ways and, you know, and that is evident in like the worst decision it makes with Nina where they don't, do anything and i was shocked upon rewatching it to see this they do nothing in the entire first half of the show to set up the whole gato and nina were in a relationship twist it is not it's not even alluded to or foreshadowed in any way whatsoever till episode six and even then it's only very broadly alluded to so it's like it just feels like haphazard in a way in terms of its plotting that means that there are lots of individual moments and some individual episodes that i do think work quite well and the production value of it is so good um, that it's easy to sort of enjoy the show along the way, but it very much feels like a popcorn Gundam in that, like, you enjoy the moment, like, the experience of watching it for most of it, um, and then especially, like, the aftertaste at the end is so sour that I expect I will have forgotten a lot of what Stardust Memory is in a year again. Um, yeah. That's kind of my impression of it. I agree with a lot of this, and, and I actually had the same experience where, like, the even though I actually do like a lot of the stuff in the middle, I had very much forgotten, like the exact order of events or like where Lieutenant Burning died or like all I knew he is he did and I did not remember how and just like a bunch of stuff like that um that was kind of a haze I actually think um and I was thinking of about this a lot while watching it because like there are a lot of things I like and think work about this show I think it's in the wrong format I think this should have Mm -hmm. been a two-hour movie like this is such a good setup for a two-hour movie which is trainee pilot who is a young like plucky upstart um, is involved in this incident where a Gundam is stolen by this um, radical ideologue and they start this like they become rival pilots and at the same time he is on this sort of coming of age thing where he is discovering himself as a man and they chase each other across the stars and then they fight that's a two-hour movie it's it's like it's rocky in space it's like you know it's that kind of thing it's like this rival pilot story in space 13 episodes is too much and like I think there are a couple of good threads in this show that are just not really sustainable over 13 episodes and they never really figure out how to sustain. But it's not hard at all for me to imagine the very effective two-hour movie version of Stardust Memory. And I don't mean the Afterglow of Xeon recap movie. I mean like an actual like made-as-a-two-hour movie thing. Um, I think you could make something really special out of it. I think there's just a lot of the mistakes come from this doesn't this isn't really an episodic piece of storytelling in the way that like when we get to 8th MS team next time that one is so perfectly suited for the OVA format you know um, yeah it, or, like, or like the I'll pocket it, which is the two hour movie thing just split yeah. up into those episodes exactly you know and and 8th MS team is is a show when we will talk about it next time is a show that leaves you wanting more I would take another 13 episodes of that any day of the week by the time you get to Stardust Memory, they're crawling over the finish line. Those last three episodes feel, like, honestly, largely unnecessary because episode 10 is the genuine climax of the show. Yeah. And then 11, 12, 13 are just kind of a long, wet fart of an ending. Yeah, and so it just ends up in this weird place where, yes, I think that is um, a big problem with it is just it sort of extends, it has to extend some, like, kind of weaker plot threads over a really long period of time. And it makes them feel especially weak. And, like, the additional time they have to develop characters, it feels like it goes mostly wasted. Largely because I feel like they make a bad mistake to kind of sideline Gato and his whole story for almost the entire middle section of the show. Until he comes back in in the Nightmare of Solomon episode. 
Um, so you just have this long stretch that is mostly just Ko and his supporting cast. Um, and then once you hit the final five episodes or so, Gato comes back in, and then all of Ko's supporting cast just kind of stop being a factor in the series. And it just feels like, well, what was the point of spending all this fucking time on all these characters if they just don't even factor in literally in any way in the last five episodes? Yeah, like all of those other like rival pilots on the on the ship yeah. who are like the the hot shots who their whole denouement is that they become titans, which feels like that should have been a bigger deal, but it's not. It's like a little joke at the end of the show. Yeah, um, which is the other thing problem with Stardust Memory is like I don't think it's obligated. It doesn't have to be the like story about how the titans came to be, but that is what it is kind of tr- like nominally trying to be. Like it's not as if like people are accidentally interpreting it as being the like prequel to zeta because that's what it was supposed to be like that's what it was marketed as that was part of like the mission statement in sort of drafting out the series is it was supposed to end with and this is how the titans were created and it's like well that's an important enough event and an interesting enough event that you can imagine the show that does that with a lot of these same pieces and it being really interesting um but instead it ends up being a complete afterthought and i think the deciding not to have the conclusion of your series about the creation of the titans from the perspective of the federation end with the protagonist of the show being a titan which they just conveniently avoid with ko um i think that's a huge mistake and it just feels kind well, of because, disappointing in that context but also like the titans aren't even alluded to until like the final three episodes yes. like there's it's it's so out of the blue and we'll talk about this with the ending but what it does is it means the titan stuff comes out of nowhere and has no time to develop and it also renders the main characters of this series utterly superfluous because ko has ko literally has nothing to do with the last like he could have died in his fight with with annavel in uh, in episode 10 and that would be it he would not he does not impact the end of this series um yeah it's which is a choice I don't know if it's a conscious choice because it really feels like they forgot to write an ending and then scribbled it on napkins, but we'll get there. We'll get there, Sean. Um, how do we want to take this from here? There are a lot of threads. I think one thing I want to kind of lay down is sort of like what the three overall threads of Stardust Memory are in my mind. Because mm-hmm. I think there's three main kind of thrusts to it. It is a coming-of-age story for Ko. Not a coming-of-age story quite in the way that the other Gundam boys coming-of-age are because he is already 19, but it is very clearly going from like boyhood to manhood and like discovering sex and girls and things like that that's i think it's somewhat clumsily done but that is clearly in here um there is the rival pilots thing and the rival pilots thing is is frankly more heavy here than in any other gundam i can think of other than thunderbolt thunderbolt gundam does it really heavily um because it's literally the two rivals in like even screen time um but this show is like Sets that up in the first episode. The first theme song is called The Winner. The second theme song is called Men of Destiny. It is Mm -hmm. about these two locked in a deadly rivalry, you know? Like, even more so than, like, like, you know, OG Gundam. Char is not front of mind for Amuro for large swaths of Gundam. Annabelle Gatto is front of mind for Ko 100% of the time of Stardust Memory. It is about that rivalry. And they faceplant on that. We'll get that there later. And third, it is about Annabelle Gatto and about this ideology, like this guy who has a much like pure vision of the ideology of Xeon than I think we have seen before, certainly up to now in Gundam. Um, and, and this guy who is trying to revive um, 
Zeon through this this evil plot, this Stardust, um, this Operation Stardust plot. And I think those are overall the like three like avenues of the show. And I think it does none of them great in the aggregate. I I enjoy the Annabelle plot the most, but I it also falls flat on that. I think in the end too for for reasons you were alluding to earlier and that it winds up being weirdly nihilistic and and i feel like the gato side of the show is the side this is the thing that surprised me on rewatching it is i have such a big memory of gato because he's a great character and akiotsuka is a great a great voice actor um he brings so much to the character um but he's really not in the show that much um there's nowhere near as much gato as i remembered because i remembered it being sort of a fairly even thing like i remember it's like oh yeah it's the rival thing it's ko it's gato and it cuts between the two of them they have their own stories going on that's really not it at all like it is it is almost entirely ko's perspective and then you get occasional cutaways to gato as he's doing his plan um but those are typically very brief and you don't get a huge amount of actual insight into like gato's backstory and stuff like that which is particularly frustrating because that's what you really need if you want to do some of that Nina stuff at the end. You need some of what Gato's perspective is on all of that. I mean, you don't get any of that. And so it feels like that side of the show, which is the most interesting, um, which is the part that I think when it is done well, like it is in episodes 9 and 10, it is done really well and it's the most interesting part. Um, It's like that's so good that that like kind of hangs over in my memory, like what the show was, even if it's actually a, a pretty small part of it. And it's the most unique thing this show has to offer because yeah. Gundam at this point has done coming-of-age stories. It's done rival pilot stories. What it hasn't really done is the on-the-ground Xeon soldier perspective. And it's something that um, Gundam really wouldn't do heavily until Thunderbolt Gundam. Um, the, you know, the character from Xeon we spend the most time with in Tomino Gundam is Char, who is associated with them in such a weird way uh-huh. you know that like you can't he's not Annabelle Gatto he is not someone who is a true believer in this cause he is in it for Char um and that's not what we have here so yeah when they do it right it's like okay this is really interesting because we just there isn't this I can't get this somewhere else um all the other stuff y- you can yeah absolutely but so yeah I, I think I basically agree with your assessment that those are the three main threads and I would say it's kind of, you know, I think the show starts off pretty strong. And then for that kind of like probably episodes four-ish to about seven is it's really heavy on the coming of age stuff with Ko. Um, and some of that's okay because I do like Kelly a lot. And then the second half is where it starts moving back into the, okay, let's bring Gato in. Let's bring back the rivalry and let's, let's kind of try to refine what the bigger themes of the show are. And then after episode 10, it's just like, and we kind of did it. Now we got to do it again, only worse. <laughs> That's a very good way to put it. Absolutely. Uh, so where do we want to take it from here, Sean? Uh, let's start at the beginning and I think talk about episode one, because I do think episode one is very good. Um, and in particular, so it starts with a prologue um, where, you know, Gundam stuff after 0079 loves to do this. They love having prologues that take place either during the Battle of Solomon or, as we already see here, the Battle of Abawaku. Um, and I feel like, particularly now that I'm reading a little bit more Gundam manga here and there, I feel like that's every other Universal Century Gundam manga I've read starts with a flashback to the Battle of Abawaku, and then it cuts to like 10 years later, and here's where these characters are. Um, but we start with Abawaku, we get a little bit of Gato, um, who is characterized um, very specifically, and it's fun watching it after playing Ghost of Tsushima, where you get a lot of this 
Aki version of Akiyotsuka, where he's very much a Bushido, like like he's modeled after the samurai kind of um, characters, where they where they're going with Gato. That he's a true believer, um, man who like has honor, is willing like to die and give everything he has for this cause in a very like Bushi warrior kind of way. And you get that introduction, um, and then you you cut to four years later, 0083, Um, you're on Earth, and this is where we get um back to paradise which is the yep. english language version of um the winner uh which i like the winner the japanese version i like back to paradise even more i think there's something about the the flow of the lyrics in that song that just fucking kill um and you get a very good training montage which is and it's the most ova thing in all the gundam ovas i think we i talked about this with um endless waltz the wing ova talked about this with 0080 there is a specific thing that to me is the ova song that is like this late 80s early 90s fucking bop that plays over some kind of montage um and it is it's like the sonic the hedgehog ova which came out as a movie over here like has like all of these things from this period have this song back to paradise is like the king of those songs and the sequence is so good um, and it was like I just felt so happy <laughs> watching the beginning of 0080. It just like it just hits you with the OVA ness of it, with this just incredibly luscious animation, um, with like and this like great kind of like sort of transitional 80s to 90s techno rock kind of bop hit. Um, it is very good. Absolutely, uh, and yeah, I go back and forth on whether or not I like Back to Paradise or The Winner more. I think they're both fucking great. I agree. I probably enjoy the the kind of lyrical flow of the insert version more, and they use it just it's phenomenally used here. It's used in um, one later episode, um, I think, when they're training on the moon, mm-hmm. um, and it's just it's it's such a great fucking song, and it's such a great intro to the show of these guys out in the desert doing this big training exercise immediately kind of like this show really does do a phenomenal job at like putting you in the place and time and like situation of the characters um and doing that here is just it's that's a sequence that is like burned into my memory whereas a lot of the middle of the show as you say is kind of a mush in my mind um i will never forget the like training montage at the beginning of stardust memory it's so good yeah it's it's phenomenal uh, back to paradise is a song that's so good um, that I just snuck it into an 80s music playlist on Spotify that I use um, when I say play sometimes in my classroom. So whether they know it or not, there's about 100 <laughs> teenagers in Colorado that have been well exposed to Two Back to Paradise. Uh, but I don't think any of them have any idea that came from a weird anime from 1992. Um, but, That's great. Yeah, but I've, I've been spreading the love of Back to Paradise. Um, but yeah, like it just has this immediate tone to it um, that I think is very effective here where... Um, it is, you know, compared to War in the Pocket, which was didn't have new types and had a little bit more of that sort of grounded military thing, but it was all through the eyes of this child protagonist. Here you, you have a similar, no new types. It's all like military dudes and it's very like military Top Gun movie kind of feel to it. Um, and, and, it and because you don't have that filter of a child protagonist, it like kind of has a lot of that testosterone to it or like that testosterone testosterone fueled sense to the plotting um which i think in some places here i think it works particularly well i do think eventually they like kind of get away with themselves with it when they introduce the other federation pilots that come in and that gets a little bit obnoxious at some point because they redo the same bit over and over but early on at this point i think it does do such a good job of establishing its own niche within particularly at the time the gundam media that was available um, in telling a more straight military story that kind of got away from some of the 
normal tropes that you associate with Gundam from the main TV shows. Yeah, and and I mean there are things, yeah, there are things I like about it and don't like. I think it fuels some really fucked gender politics in this yes. show, which we'll get to. Um, which it didn't have to, and that's one of the things that frustrates me about it. Um, I do think there are things I like in how they handled it. Like all the interactions between Lieutenant Burning, Keith, and Co. I think are yeah. really good. Um, consistently, like scenes they have together. And it's why I really love episode eight, which is the one where he dies at the end. But like they really bring it back to him and his two trainees. And all of that stuff is just very well done. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that is that. It's like that core three characters um, with like Lieutenant Burning as like the old gruff instructor who's trying to sort of like pass on everything he's learned to these two young bucks. Like that is a like, uh, you know, a tale as old as time, but it works pretty well when they start hitting it. Um, and then you get a point. So that's, you know, we have Nina and all those characters to get introduced. But there's a point in episode one that on rewatching it, I was really curious, having now knowing what they do at the end, and because I remembered that Gato like physically comes in when Nina is there and he steals one of the Gundams, um, because they have the two experimental Gundams there that they're there to test because everyone's a test pilot. Gato shows up to steal one of them because one of them is armed with nuclear weapons. I remembered that Nina was there. I was like, surely they must have done something there. That when you rewatch the show, you see the building blocks in a similar way that when you rewatch 0079, the original Mobile Suit Gundam, in episode one, if you now know that Hayato and Fraubo eventually are in a relationship, if you watch Hayato when he pulls up outside Amaro's house and talks to Frau, like there are specific little things that they hang on for brief moments that show you that Hayato has a crush on her that you're not going to pick up on your first viewing because you don't know any of the characters. I thought there'd be something like that because it is a, uh, let's say, monumentally more important plot detail here than Hayato uh, having a crush on Frabo was in Mobile Suit Gundam. But there is nothing. She is there. She's in the fucking hangar. She sees in person, physically, Gato walks in and, and, and like walks up and looks at the fucking Gundam GPO2. She sees him and she's like, hey, you stay away from there. Gato looks up and looks at her. They see each other in the flesh and nobody reacts. There's no verbal content comment. There's no like facial expressions. There's nothing. And then Gato steals the fucking Gundam and then the rest of the plot starts. And like, I was utterly blown away. I did not expect at all that it was so not set up that even knowing that that twist was going to eventually come later in the story that they had in a relationship previously, um, that I don't, I wonder if at some point, and I could not confirm this anywhere, that that was a thing that they had never envisioned originally for the story and they put in later because it is so not alluded to at all in this first episode. It's not alluded to at all until the specific moment they start deciding that it will be a thing. Like, I 100% believe that that was not planned because it is so inorganic to everything the story is about. It so throws a wrench in those, like, main three things we were talking about of the main three threads of the show. because has nothing to do with any of them and just fucks all of them over. Um, it, it feels like something, like, when they start alluding to it in the second half of the series is when they decided that. I do not believe, making episode one, that they had that in mind. I just don't think so. Yeah, and I, my mind was blown. Because I just, like... Yeah. It was one of the things I was most excited about rewatching Stardust Memory was to see, it's like, surely they did more to set that up than I caught. Because it just, to me, my memory of the first time watching it, I was just, like, so sideswiped by that revelation. That I was like, what the fuck are you even talking about? And I think the way they handle it after they do the twist... 
um, is even more perplexing. But yes, I was very surprised upon rewatching episode one. That most of episode one, I think, is very good. Um, but knowing where the story goes, it is very confusing to me um, that there is no work done to set up that twist whatsoever. Yeah, but yeah, putting that aside, episode one is very good. And episode one also has a fucking great title, Gundam Jack. I fucking yes. love that title. Yeah, so they, they, there's Gundam Jack here. And then later in the series, they talk about colony jacking. Uh, multiple yes. times about stealing a colony which is also a very good gundam word gundam jack sounds like it could be like its own series about dudes who go around stealing gundams i'd watch that i would definitely watch that it's it's a or a video game it's it's gundam's version of grand theft auto you can just mm-hmm. walk around a big like space environment and steal gundams and go around in them i don't know how that would work but you could do that um but yeah episode two like i said i think is great that's the one where they are searching for the gundam um they are following gato and i think i think that's probably the best overall episode of the series yeah yeah Yeah, this was the one that i had the strongest memory of other than some of the bullshit at the end uh because yes it is to me it is like when i first watched stardust memory because i guess we should say that like stardust memory generally speaking is pretty well regarded in the fandom i think there are like it is not universally beloved, but in both in Japan and over here, like it's generally really well liked. Um, I think most people agree that the ending stuff is not good, but they, they it doesn't bother other people as much as maybe it does us. Um, but episode two to me was like a blueprint of what this show should have been, which is it is very kind of action focused overall, um, but it's very tense and it uses the animation quality really effectively to show us um, a kind of action sequence of them kind of going through this foggy area trying to track down this Gundam. Um, And I feel like that whole sequence would be a lot harder to do effectively on a TV budget. Um, Whereas if you can do like all the animation around the fog and the mist, um, and like the colors are so striking and very unique looking, this very kind of like early dawn kind of bluish green color scheme they have for that episode. Um, It just uses the OVA format really, really effectively. And it's a nice tense scene that then... Um, sets up for you like kind of the dynamic between Gato and Ko where Gato like interestingly enough kind of just leaves Ko alive kind of letting I think seeing that like there's no real reason from Gato's perspective to kill this one Earth Federation dude Um, it's more important to keep the Gundam safe and it sets up that animosity that Ko has um, this feeling of inadequacy that he develops that I think is kind of the defining trait of the character Um, I think is really well set up here in episode two with that kind of confrontation they have well, yeah, it's it's that confrontation. There's another guy that's with them, Lieutenant Allen, who gets killed. Yeah. Um, and and there's a lot of, like, chaos in the episode. You know, Burning breaks his leg, um, in, and then he has a cast on for the rest of the... for much of the rest of the show. And there's just... there's all this good stuff there where, like, they are chasing through the fog, and they are at a distinct disadvantage because these are, you know, two rookies and an old dude, and Gato is, like, an actual, like, genuine ace pilot hero who is outsmarting them at every step. And it's just a really good cat and mouse game episode. I also love the title of episode two, Endless Pursuit. It's very good. Yeah, and it kind of feels like a lot more what 08th MS team eventually is. Yes. Um, and like eight years later when that comes out. Uh, because it, it is way more built off of the model of most episodes of 08th MS team feel more like it's an Endless Pursuit type thing where they come up with a broad action set piece premise and build an episode around that and develop characters around that rather than uh, the rest of Stardust Memory is a bit more kind of structured, more or less the way you would structure a Gundam TV show. Um, 
and but here they kind of stick to this nice like everything feels focused around this one pursuit at the heart of the episode I like the third episode too. Um, I don't love the other like hotshot pilots who are in the show a ton, but I think in this one episode where they come in and are just dickheads, and you wind up having this kind of like um, this fight between them for like control of Gundam Unit One. It's it's the Top Gun Gundam stuff like at its like strongest in the entire series. Probably is in episode three. And I think it's not my favorite part of the show, but I do think the like like paintball match that uh, Ko has with uh, Lieutenant Monsha, Bernard Monsha, yes. the names in the show are very good, um, is a really good and well animated action sequence. Um, and overall, I enjoy that episode. Yeah, I, I like that episode as well. I think the thing that happens though is that episode sets up the dynamic with Lieutenant Monsha. Um, and it's well executed within that episode. And I think having the, like, here's this just asshole, sexist, piece of shit, um, womanizing pilot comes in um, and is really cocky. And Ko kind of has to prove himself against him. Um, and Ko is kind of partially successful at that, although maybe not all the way. Um, I think that is a good plot for an episode and a good dynamic to have for Ko. And to get that Top Gun military dude bro vibe you want from the show in terms of what the premise is. The problem is that then it repeats that for the next, like, three episodes. And it's, like, every time that that Muncha character appears um, in the first half of the show from that point on, it is the exact same shtick over and over and over yep. again. And it ends up feeling... In episode three, I think you can give credit to the series as saying, like, okay, like, it's using this as a way to be critical of this, ad, like, very, like, militaristic... Um, patronizing attitude and sexist attitude this character has when they just repeat that shtick over and over again it just feels like okay you're not as interested in kind of dissecting that and taking that apart rather than you're just having fun like replicating that on screen yes I agree with all of that and I think yeah on its own episode three really good when it's something that they just keep repeating ad nauseum and never really get over and then Lieutenant Monsha never like gets the denouement of like I actually think the idea of having that character be the one who becomes a Titan could be a really powerful way to like kind of end the series and show like who is in power now. But it's this like little kiss off thing at the end after we don't see him for four episodes. So yeah. they just they don't do well with that character. Uh, the fourth episode is the last major one on Earth. And I like this one as well. It's it's a pretty Gato centric one because he arrives at this base in Africa and basically the the people at that base are helping him get off of earth and are like sacrificing themselves um for for the zeon cause and i like that side of it very much it's kind of the last gato centric episode we have for a while yeah although i think like outside of the gato stuff that one is i that's the one where i when i got to episode four i was like oh this is an episode that's also in the show like i just completely this is one whose entire existence i had forgotten about um, because it does feel like it does some useful stuff for Gato, but it ends up feeling like a little bit of a filler episode to me, which is kind of like a lot of what this whole section of the show sort of just feels yes. like. Yeah. yeah. Episode five, which has a great title, Gundam to the Sea of Stars, is obviously the one where they go to space. Um, and this is the one where the big thing that happens oh, yeah. in this episode is that Ko goes out in the Gundam Unit 2. Is his Unit 2 or is No, his Gundam is Unit 1. 
Okay, his is unit unit one. Um, and he takes it out, even though it has been well explained to him on multiple occasions that Gundam Unit 1 is not equipped for space combat, it cannot fight in space, and right before he goes out in Gundam Unit 1, they are preparing another mobile suit that is prepared for space combat, and that you would assume Ko, as a test pilot, would have no problem piloting, and could go solve the situation, and instead... Because Nina looks at him funny, he goes out in Gundam Unit 1 and gets completely fucking destroyed. And it's a very well animated and choreographed and directed sequence because everything in this show is. But it does start the trend of what I like to call Ko is a fucking dumbass or Ko is a big old dum-dum. Because he is a big old dum-dum and he continues to be a big old dum-dum the whole show. He's just not very smart. Yeah, so this is where you run into one of the problems with the series, which is um, I think it's like... I think it copy and paste a little bit too much from traditional Gundam shows onto a format and like a structure and set of characters that do not copy as cleanly over. Because this is a thing where if this was Amuro or this was Camille or Judo or Garod from Afterward Gundam X, absolutely. I could see those characters doing this um, where, yes, they are. It's the first time they're out in space. Um, the Gundam GPO one is not outfitted. It needs the full Werner version, which looks fucking rad and is a very good Gundam design. But it, they don't have the fucking like you know jets basically on it for it to control well in space. And Ko is just so insistent on he's like doing all the calculations and all this shit because Nina is not giving him the calculations because she's like if I give him the calculations he'll go and take out the Gundam. And I think she really quickly realizes how like fucking stupid that thing is. Like probably. If he just gets the calculations, then you'll be like, okay, cool, I can test run the Gundam. And then if we get in a fight, I'll use the one that then, since I've tested it, I'll actually use an actual fucking thing that works in space. Um, I don't know why, really, Tina, Nina holds back the fucking weird calculations or it's, whatever the bullshit is This is, is This on. is where all the Nina Co. stuff yeah. starts getting so annoying to me. It's so bad in this episode. We'll do a whole segment on Nina later, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We should just do that episode thing once we've run through these episodes. But yeah, so it's... That whole side of it is just very weird, and it would make sense if it was a 15-year-old kid who was thrown into this situation that didn't know what was going on, was only fighting for, like, desperately for their survival, which is what the standard Gundam protagonist setup is. Because this is, not this exact scenario, but broadly speaking, this is a very common early Gundam episode trope that you get um, where whether they're in space or whatever, the, the, the pilot of the Gundam, the Gundam boy, is really bullheaded about using the Gundam in a way that doesn't work properly, or they get too cocky and too arrogant, um, and then they end up fucking up and something bad happens. That happens in every single Gundam thing, usually a couple times in the first like 15 or so episodes. But it works because they're 15-year-old kids who are in over their shit and have, you know, that have an overestimated sense of their selves because they're teenagers. Whereas Ko is, you know, he's not in a, a fully grown man. Like he's not in his mid-20s or something, but he's supposed to be 19. I think he reads as a little bit older than that to me. Um, and he's a test pilot. Like, he's a member of the military. This is a guy who has voluntarily joined the Earth Federation military after the one-year war, has piloting experience, has all this stuff. Like, you know, he's, he's not even just a pilot. He's a test pilot. He's someone who's performed well enough in, like, the Earth Federation version of the Air Force Academy that they allow him to pilot experimental, high-end, um, like, bespoke prototype mobile suits. Like, that's who this character is. And for him to have this attitude feels like it doesn't gel with the broad backstory we have for him. And I think that's a big problem with Ko 
is that they kind of want to have their cake and eat it too. They both want the protagonist to be an older character that isn't a magic new type boy so that they can feel like it's more mature or whatever um, so that they can have him be older. And at the same time, they want to run through the exact same narrative beats you would with a standard Gundam boy protagonist, even when I don't think that that works when the character is older. No, and I actually think it's interesting, like contemporaneous with this series is Gundam F91. And Gundam F91 has Seabook, who is um, like 17 or 18, so he's also a little older than your typical Gundam boy. And they just, like, not that Gundam F91 has the time to get super in-depth with its characters, but it, like, does that side of it so much better, I feel like. Because it does mm-hmm. not, it actually feels like it kind of adjusts the tropes to the age of the character. And Seabook feels, like, fairly natural within that world. And yeah, Ko feels like he is 19 or 20 but at heart, he's like fucking 12. Like he has, like just, we'll talk about this later, but like some of the decisions he makes like around Nina and stuff, it feels like he has like, like he's supposed to be significantly younger, like the age of like having no experience talking to girls. Like it's it's very weird. Yes, yeah, yeah. When he's like trying to give her the tickets or whatever. And it's yeah. a, again, if this was Garrod trying to do this scene with Tifa in After We're Gonna Max. Perfect, absolutely. no problem. Yeah, 100%. He's an awkward 15-year-old boy who legitimately has never really talked to girls his age. Um, Ko is, you know, again, he graduated from a fucking military academy, you know, for fuck's sake, dude. Like, come on. It's it's just like some of... And, you know, we don't really get much insight into Ko's backstory. There's never, like, an area that they go, necessarily. Um, But it's like, it just feels like the way the character looks and is... Supposed to be based on what you understand the characters meant to have gone through to be where he is doesn't match up with the the what you see and this is maybe episode five honestly i think is like the most clear example of that because it very much feels like they just took an unused script idea from another gundam show and just put ko in in the the pilot position for it yeah, I mean, even if you read, um, I reference this all the time, the Tomino novelization of the original Mobile Suit Gundam, where if you don't know, one of the many changes made from the original series in the novelization is that he ages up Amuro a little bit, and he makes him a cadet in the... And all the characters basically are cadets. So, like, they are just at the beginning of their training, but they are part of the Earth Federation. So, like, Amuro has a little bit of experience as a pilot. And it goes through a lot of these same beats where it is much more explicitly about coming of age via sex and like Amuro losing his virginity and having his first experience with women and it does it very well in part because they adjust it and and Amuro is is not written exactly as he's written in the show um and it's 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 basically doing the stardust memory stuff but like with an internal logic that makes sense yeah yeah so anyway episode six is an episode that both times I've watched it I've liked the concept of it a little bit more than the execution. It's the warrior Von Braun. It's where they're on the Luna colony, the Von Braun city on the moon. They're doing the full Vernier upgrades. Um, Ko gets beat up and winds up leaving. And then he meets this dude who we find out later is a Xeon soldier uh, who's like lost an arm and he's building this big Volvaro mobile armor. And I, and then at the end, Ko decides to like help him finish it, even though they're on opposite sides and I like the like last 10 minutes of this episode, but there's just, I don't know, there's just something about like I never feel like it fully uses, it's such a good idea for an episode, and I think it gets sidetracked by some other stuff. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I'm with you, that it does have the makings of a really good mid-episode. Like this is like, I think this arc, the Co and Kelly stuff between episode 6 and episode 7, 
are the best the like coming of age stuff for Ko gets. Um, it feels yes. like the most authentic where it's like I can kind of see more where Ko is coming from and some of the difficulties he's having a little bit better than I do in like episodes four or five. Um, but yeah, I think you're right that it just doesn't fully land what it's going for. One thing I do like about this is it just weirdly reminds me of Kukuru's Doen's Island from Mobile Suit Gundam, the episode that's not in any of the uh, official releases. There's something about uh, Kelly in this that just has a real big Doen energy to me, um, and I don't think that's intentional, but I really like it. Um, but yeah, like I, I think it does have some really great moments, and, and it is... I don't remember if it's episode 6 or episode 7, but in one of these episodes is where you get the montage um, where it's you have... I was saying, yeah. So in episode six, you have the montage, which is set to the ending theme for the first half of the show, which is Magic by Jacob Wheeler, which is a great ending theme. Um, and it is like one of the most explicitly romantic songs in the history of Gundam. Um, that it's like, I mean, so the, because the lyrics of the song are about the singer who has had a like one night stand kind of like fling relationship with some character that seems like maybe like the person in the, the other person of the song, like they have this very like kind of on and off again, physical relationship, but the the singer wants something real. They want the magic of a real relationship and something that's more deep and romantic and personal. And that's what the song lyrics are about. And in English, which leads me to believe that maybe the animators didn't realize like just how romantic the connotation was because and this is where I, like, obviously there's no world in which this would have ever happened, especially in fucking 1991-92. But I would have loved the Stardust memory that is a totally different show at this point, where at the halfway point, Ko realizes that the weird relationship thing he's got with Nina just isn't working. It's just not what he, he needs in life. And then you have this young hotshot and kind of but still kind of timid federation test pilot who runs into the older more experienced kind of you know daddy-esque uh better or xeon ex xeon pilot who is injured he's lost his arm but is determined um and he's got the one thing that code doesn't have that he has this ideology and he's determined to see it through in this real belief and co at first can confront him as kind of confused and upset um, but he just can't seem to get away from it and get the idea of, like, who Kelly is out of his head. And for whatever reason, Ko is just compelled to help Kelly, even though they are pilots on the opposite side of the war. That is the most homoerotic fucking thing in the history of Gundam. A show that, a series that has multiple actual gay characters. We've already had one with Gwyn in uh, Turn A Gundam. But it never gets as fucking hot and heavy as it does here in 0083. And it would be so much better. And Ko would be a, such a better character if this was the, was the relationship he had. And Jonathan, I just want to read out the lyrics to Magic by Jacob Wheeler. Um, oh, please, I was about to sing them. So so please, uh, go yeah, ahead. I, I know this yeah. song, Back of My Hand. I'm going to read them out because I do want people, like, if you, you know, maybe you didn't rewatch Stardust Memory for this episode that you're listening to us, like, talk about it. You only remember vaguely what I'm saying. Just picture, you know, Ko... And this older buff um, Xeon dude, and they're both working together on this mobile armor on a montage. Some of the montage, including shots like Ko riding on Kelly's shoulders to like reach a place up top, <laughs> like it's very physically intimate. So it's like this is straight up. I have no idea. I would love to know what who like came up with this <laughs> sequence and like whether or not they really understood what they're putting on screen because it's really good. Um, but all that is happening while you're hearing these lyrics in English. Don't come to me. 
just because you're lonely tonight. Lonely's only part of your game. As long as you live, you must remember one thing. Give and take are one in the same. So tell me, are you ready? Really, really ready? I don't want your love for one night. Because I'm not looking for a love affair. I need the magic when I hold you near. It's more important than a one-night stand. I need the magic when I touch, touch your hand. And I also just like magic is such a great, unique song. We touched on it a little bit with um, uh, Gundam X, After War Gundam X, because mm-hmm. the song in um, Human, Touch. Uh, Human Touch, Human Touch, I think is like an even better version of this. But they're both sort of this like 80s ballad and magic even more explicitly magic is a michael jackson song like it is just straight up it is like one of the it is like one of the ballads from uh off the wall or thriller it is really like one of those it is produced like one of those jacob wheeler sings in kind of a similar register he is like almost to the level of doing a michael jackson impression um and it's really interesting that way but uh, so so it has this like it is this over the top like 80s love song and yes when you get it in that sequence at the end of this episode of Stardust Memory and because it's also like just to set the scene for like it is such a well-directed sequence because this whole episode has a lot of like um kind of Blade Runner homages in the like cityscape with like the lights in the darkness um kind of on the horizon very much looks like it's out of Blade Runner but the way that sequence starts is Ko is going back to the ship and he runs into Nina who has been looking for him and Nina is like trying to coax him back and he's like okay I'm gonna come back tell them I'm coming but there's something I have to do tonight and then magic kicks in and those words Sean is saying go as he runs through this night with these lights in the background and he comes up on on kelly and he's like i'm gonna help you kelly and then they're riding around on each other's shoulders and taking their shirts off and getting sweaty it's uh yeah yeah it's good yeah it's really good and it's particularly again i just don't know if any of the people animating this sequence like knew that they would hear a man like soulfully belt out the words one night stand over this sequence, which is like what some of the most expli- like sexually explicit lyrics in any Gundam song, it's like it's a song literally about people having sex and then like trying to seek a more like spiritually or romantically fulfilling relationship with each other, um, which is great. I just wish that the show actually like legitimately leaned into that because I think it is such a better character dynamic than what they have with fucking Ko and Nina, which is the main romantic subplot in the show, um, which sucks. and it's terrible. Yeah. yeah, or you can have the one that like you only get this one hint of it in this uh, section of the show where it's Keith and um, what's her name Mora, the uh, like really kind of buff, bigger uh, engineer lady that's kind of Nina's friend. Like you get this one scene where apparently they go on a date, and that never comes up again. That is also a way more interesting romantic character pairing than Ko and Nina, and it's just really frustrating. <laughs> Episode 7 with Shining Blue Fire is basically part 2 of this because it is um, Kelly uh, delivers the Volvaro to Zeon but then they don't want him to pilot it and he gets really mad so he takes it and challenges Ko so he can like prove his worth to Zeon and so Ko goes out and fights him in the Gundam. Um, This is where we get really heavy into Nina's main character trait for the second half of Stardust Memory which is being a... um, quivering hysteric i don't know how else mm-hmm. to say it but like she just goes on into full like like victorian literature hysteria of like 
cannot control her body, crying, weeping. She, like, literally, like, jumps into the anti-gravity of the big, like, Gundam chamber and, like, throws herself in front of the Gundam as Ko is trying to get out and almost dies. And it's just, it's the most ludicrous, sexist, awful bullshit. When I say she is the worst character in Gundam, that is true even without the twist at the end. She is, like unbearable to watch in scenes like this because it is such a far cry from the like complex nuanced human emotions Tomino gives women in all of his Gundam work it's just like it's just a complete and utter caricature that would should get laughed out of like the scripting phase let alone animated and voice acted and everything yeah and this is the section of the show where you get the first and i don't think there's much like you could know about this without having knowing like seeing the show all the way through for the first time and knowing that they're going to do the gato thing at the end with her um but this is the first time where there's some sort of vague implication because she knows who kelly is and there's no reason that the audience knows for why she would know who kelly is and so that's why she like goes and goes out there um, and so it's the first piece of foreshadowing outside. There's like a line in episode six that one of her friends has about like, you had a romantic relationship that didn't go well. Maybe you should be in a romantic relationship again. Um, but other than that, which is only the vaguest sense of a foreshadowing, this is the first time episode seven at the midpoint, episode seven of 13, where that twist um, that she had a relationship with Gato is foreshadowed or set up or alluded to in any significant way, um, which is yeah. uh, way too late. And it's one of the things that it just feels like it kills her character because she has to, it's like part of like what that plot choice does is it forces her character into this weird hysteric role where she's like pulled between two sides and it just kind of exposes part of the problem with Stardust memory in general, which is that none of the main characters on like the Earth Federation side have any sense of like a belief in something or like an ideology they don't really have much of a motivation like there's no i have a hard time understanding what nina's perspective on the world is because it's like it's it's easy to assume when you just have like the basic characterization that she's like a you know engineer who then falls in love with a soldier dude it's pretty easy to sort of like roll with that and you don't have to give a lot more detail and it's kind of fine but once you start doing something way more complex, like she's torn between these like allegiances on both sides, well, then you need to understand what an allegiance means to Nina as a character. And there's just no, there's nothing with that. Um, it's a similar problem that they have with Ko, where they never give Ko much of what feels like a concrete like motivation for anything outside. He just kind of doesn't like Gato and wants to prove himself, which I don't think sustains his character for the full series. Um, Especially and- because like this is a show about someone in Gato fighting for a deeply held personal belief. And like, so so because of that, Zeon's ideology is the only ideology we hear about in Stardust Memory. We never hear about like what the Federation is affirmatively fighting for. And you could make that into a point that like yes. the Federation has no ideology other than perpetuating itself, which is true. But like, Ko does not ever have to grapple with that or realize it. It's just, he's fighting Gato because Gato is the enemy and that's, you know which is not good enough for a story yeah and it starts coming to a head here where you like you realize that they're never going to pay off any of that stuff because that is something that the show in episodes like two and three bring up when ko and gato encounter each other they have like a brief conversation and the main thing that gato says is like i'm never going to lose to someone who doesn't believe in anything like what are you even fighting for and ko doesn't have an answer or a response to that 
um, which is another Gundam cliche. Every Gundam protagonist has that moment. Um, it's usually a little bit later in the series where they encounter an enemy and then they are actually like interrogated for like, well, what are you really fighting for? Because most Gundam protagonists are fighting for their own survival out of desperation because that's the standard setup. Um, and it, and for other Gundam shows, that works fine because that's the turning point. That's where you get to have the story arc in Afterward Gundam X where Garod learns what politics are and he gets to like express an ideology and develop one of his own. Um, but the problem with 0083 is that Ko is not a 16-year-old kid who is, or a 15-year-old kid who is thrown into this situation and has to desperately fight to survive because he's a new type and he's one of the only people who can pilot this like experimental Gundam as well um, enough to be able to like get out of this crazy situation, which is the standard Gundam setup. There, for survival is enough of an ideology and a motivation for those characters to sustain them for a significant chunk of the series until they can make it more complex than that. With Ko, you are a person who decided to join the Earth Federation military. Like, you have to have something more than that because you're not in a, like, if you don't fight, you won't survive kind of scenario. And I think, like, once you get to this midpoint of the show, you, you've, you've expected, from the, since that was set up in episode two, you'd expect around this point you would start hitting those notes and kind of, like, trying to pay that off in some way. And it seems like almost with some of the Kelly stuff, they're like getting there by having um, Ko encounter someone who's from Zeon and maybe talking to them. But then they never really pay it off. And then it just kind of, I feel like it gets swept under the rug past this point. And it easily just gets sort of dismissed once the colony drop enters the fact, it enters into the thing because it's just like, oh, we just have to stop the colony drop because it would kill a lot of people. And you don't actually have to think about it anymore. And it's profoundly disappointing. Yeah, I mean, while we're on this topic, Sean, I have uh, some thoughts on this that I wrote in my notes that I wanted to talk about, which is like just the issue of motivation in general. Yeah. You know, one of one of the reasons Gato is the strongest character in this show, beyond having Akio Otsuka and that incredible character design, and he pilots one of the coolest Gundams in the whole franchise, um, is he's highly motivated. Like, he is a Zeon true believer. He is an actual, like, hero pilot. Like, I wrote in my notes, Annabelle Gato is the real version, the genuine article of what Shara's novel cosplays as. Like, yes. Shara's novel cosplays, dresses himself as the guy who Anavel Gato actually is. Shar does not actually believe in the Xeon cause, at least in original Gundam, to a real degree. He is therefore facetious um, reasons to get revenge, but he is dressing himself in the lens of, like, the hero pilot who believes in the cause. Gato is that guy and he can actually inspire people and he believes and like I get the sense that he probably didn't even care for the Zabi family that much he probably thought they were fucking blowhards what he's here for is space noid independence and he will die for that right yeah and that I think they 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 get that across really well that like he is there for actually pretty pure ideological reasons and you can respect that on the level of Gen, you know, generally when people seem to have a strong motivation that is understandable, you can kind of not necessarily you have to agree with it, but you can get behind the the idea of ideas, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but that creates a fundamental imbalance in the story because Ko is not that guy, and if and, and is never really even designed to be that guy. I think he could in other versions of the story, but his main things are: Will I ask Nina out? And can I beat this strong pilot? But that's not what God... Gato doesn't care about beating Ko. Like, that's that's his goal, is bringing down the Earth Federation and freeing Spacenoids. 
And so you have this fundamental mismatch of motivations. And you need motivations in a story. If you have a big protagonist and antagonist, motivations need to be at a similar pitch. They do not need to be the same motivation, but they need to be pitched in similar directions. Um, Gundam 79, the original Gundam, actually does this really well, I think, with Amuro and Shar, and that these are also two highly motivated characters, but they're motivations that take time to unravel and um, determine themselves. With Shar, because he is secretive and there are twists around him, and with Amuro, because he is a boy who is like growing up and he is coming into a sense of his own motivations, right? And so those two sets of parallel motivations are pitched at a similar level. You know, um, 0083, as I alluded to earlier, ends up with this problem at the end where Ko, and to an extent even Gato, does not matter at the end of the story. But, like, Ko really has nothing to do at the end of the story because it is the colony laser and the titans that stop this thing. Ko has absolutely nothing to do with any of that. And Gato has something to do with that because he's firing the colony. But Ko is just useless and he could have died in episode 10 and it would turn out the same. And one of the things in media criticism today is there's this stupid meme that people do about Indiana Jones, about Raiders of the Lost Ark, of like, oh, Raiders of the Lost Ark is a bad story because if Indiana hadn't been there, nothing would have been different. And it is such a poor reading of these basic, like, tenets of storytelling I'm laying out. Mm -hmm. Because the whole point of Raiders of the Lost Ark, if you do that, like, similar pitches of motivation, is Indiana, he is one of the Raiders. He wants to possess this thing. Belloc, the antagonist, also wants to possess this thing, and they are in a pitched battle for possession that culminates in an ending where Indiana finishes a character arc and distinguishes himself by relinquishing the act of possession and refusing to look, and that is how it completes itself as a story, and it's a very smart story that keeps those motivations in pitch. And 0083 has no reason for that. There's nothing Co learns that makes him useless at the end of the story. He just is never motivated. And so when you get there, there's nothing to do. Other people are taking care of it. And Gato is still interesting because he has some ideas. So that's kind of my spiel. But this is, this is a big problem in this show. And I agree. I think this, this episode six and seven, which are like the whole show, really well directed. They're beautifully animated. Episode seven has one of my favorite shots in all of Gundam at the end where he lands on the moon and uh, he gets he jumps out and he gets Nina and the Gundam is out there on the moon with its hand outstretched and it's like in a kneeling position and I have that as one of my desktop wallpapers. It's an incredible shot. It's very entertaining to watch but you can also feel in episode six and seven this was, um, to borrow a phrase from later in this series, the point of no return. This is where like you were either going to kick into this story and start motivating Ko or you weren't and they don't because even in killing Kelly, this guy he had this wonderful romantic night with, he never comes into any sense of ideology or politics or why he has a purpose on this, not Earth, but Moon. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that's frustrating about it on top of that is that, you know, generally speaking, Ko's motivation, um, his strongest motivating factor as a character is his own sense of like emasculation and inadequacy around his relationship with Nina. Um, that's why they introduced the Muncho character. Um, and, and he's just like the most like ridiculous over the top, like dude, bro pilot guy you could possibly have is as a contrast for Ko. And then that's also Gato. Um, and so they have that and this, and that is like, that's a totally fine motivation if that's what your story is going to do. But if that's what your story is going to do, that's the motivation in story that if Code never overcomes that, 
and he doesn't in the whole series that's the motivation that ends up with him being a titan right that he's not motivated by ideology or politics he's motivated by this need to be more powerful and that ends in fascism that is what fascism effectively is it's like that would be a great way then to start layering in some of the titan stuff instead of just punting it off to be like the post-credit scene which is more or less what it is of the whole season or the whole show and it's really frustrating because i do think that they have some like good material if they wanted to do the this is how the titans are created thing um and they just don't so they end up kind of not doing that and then they also just don't end up then pivoting to make ko a more compelling likable um motivated protagonist that you want to follow because a, a, a protagonist motivated by their own sense of inadequacy is not going to take you for the entire stretch of a story like eventually you know that's like naruto Naruto starts out that that's his entire motivation for like the first section of that show. And then eventually he gets over it because if the entire story of Naruto was just this character feeling like I want to be the Hokage, I want to be the best of the best because everyone's treating me like shit and I want to prove myself. That motivation doesn't carry a character all the way through the, to the conclusion. That's the motivation for a character for like the first act of a story, not for the full thing. Right. Right. Exactly. Episode eight conspiracy sector is one I really like on an island on its own. I think it's a good, well-constructed episode. It's the one where Lieutenant Burning dies at the end. And I think the entire way they construct Burning's death sequence, they definitely layer on the foreshadowing very thick, where like it's, mm -hmm. the episode starts with Burning talking to Captain Synapse, which, oh God, the names in this show are so yeah. good, um, about how his wife has left him and he's sad, but he's got these two trainees. And then a lot of the episode is about how He's finally realizing his trainees are like growing up and, and they don't need him as much anymore. And and so they, they basically do all but the Simpsons joke of like, I've bought a boat with my wife and I'm retiring tomorrow and it's called the Live Forever. And then he gets shot in the head. That's basically what they do with Burning. But I think the way they do that whole sequence where at the end, like like Burning goes out with his with his test pilots and he participates in the fight uh, against its its Chima, right? The yes. um the Xeon lady. Yeah. So he yeah, fights with Xeon lady. lady crazy pirate lady and they have this fight and he wins pretty decisively but he takes this one hit to his to his armor to the gundam he's in and then he uh, retrieves this briefcase that he finds in the debris that has like all the details of operation stardust and they're heading back to the ship with ko and with uh, keith and they're all reminiscing and while they're doing that we keep getting these in a very like alfred hitchcock fashion of you show mm -hmm. the bomb under the desk that something like the shot that he took to the mobile suit fired something in the in the um mechanics and it's starting to short out and it keeps getting worse and worse and then his suit just explodes and ko and keith can't save him i think that is one of the best like individually constructed sequence sequences in um i mean not in all of gundam because there's so many good ones but but just it's a it's a phenomenal as a death sequence it's a really well constructed death sequence and I think the way it just kind of hits and lands and then the episode sort of ends on hanging on that is really impressive and I I do love the construction it like it's a testament to how well directed and boarded and everything this show is it's just a really well put together episode I think yeah absolutely it's definitely one of my favorite episodes and yes that sequence in particular. I do find it utterly hilarious that he finds this briefcase with all the play. And it's like, 
he starts to read out the plans and he's like, oh, it's Operation Stardust and they're going to be at the Solomon and, this, and Co keeps like asking these questions and Gato, what's Gato? He's like about to say like the last like critical piece of information is like, I can't believe it. Oh my God, for Operation Stardust, they're going to and then he explodes and it's like that part's, they maybe put it a little bit over the top because uh, it's a, it's kind of like a, hilariously convenient that he has like he just found the fucking briefcase with all the plans in it. Um, but yes, other than, than that, maybe slightly over the top, uh, it is a absolutely phenomenal, um, sequence of like direction and editing and it, and it hits on that character relationship from the first three or four episodes. That is some of the best character stuff in the show, which is Co Keith and Lieutenant burning and their whole thing together. Um, and I think it's like a good way to end that character arc, um, is, you know, he has to die cause he's the old dude and he's, you know, one day from retirement or whatever. And then he dies and leaves his legacy for Co and Keith to carry on. Like it's all really well executed in that sense. Yeah, and I just also like there is no other Gundam death that does it quite this way. Where I love the idea of, and of course this would happen. This happens in real life militaries all the time, where you took a hit in the wrong place and something goes wrong and no one realizes it, and then there is a malfunction that leads to death. Right? And I yeah. love that the, the like a romanticism of it. He does not die in a blaze of glory. He dies because the bullet just just terrible chance hit the wrong part of his suit and no one knows that's almost something that i i wish we saw a little more of because it's such an interesting like terrible dynamic you know Mm -hmm. yeah it's really good episodes nine and ten are where we get um back to gato um we have this big fight where the entire um axis fleet is coming into the earth uh sorry no i'm yeah you have the the Federation fleet is kind of getting together for this big naval review uh, on Konpei Island, right? Which is what used to be Solomon. Yes. Um, and so they're getting around Solomon. You meet, you have our little Haman Karn cameo here with the mm-hmm. Axis fleet, um, which was not nearly enough Haman Karn for me taste, but at least we saw her. Yes, it was. I really wish that we had a scene of Haman Karn and Gato together because that would have been good. But getting uh, some, be... getting some Haman Karn is better than getting no Haman Karn. Uh, absolutely yes this is an easy rule for life but so you have all the players kind of getting into place and throughout this whole episode gato is like moving around the fleet and getting into position and we don't know what for but like he is moving around everybody and he is successfully he and his his the delaz fleet are successfully outsmarting everybody until he gets into position and while he's getting into position ko and keith have like picked up his trail and are almost on him but then he pulls out that fucking ginormous nuclear bazooka from the shield of his Gundam in one of the just best pieces of Gundam animation in the entire franchise is him Mm -hmm. pulling that out and putting it into position like the number of like frames of animation is so good Sean oh absolutely yeah and just the like the way it like slots in and like all the shit starts spinning and lights turn on yeah it's just it's the mechanical design of it is incredibly gratifying to see animated at that like incredible level of fidelity and then he fires on the fleet we don't know that's where that that episode ends but he fires basically screaming that he is you know this is revenge for solomon or for abawaku and he becomes the nightmare of solomon once again and then we find out that the nuclear strike destroyed two-thirds of the federation fleet uh and then in episode 10 coming right off of that we get 
basically the last big fight between Gato and Ko, where they have this big pitched battle um, that I think is just one of the best animated pieces of fight animation in all of Gundam. It's also just really well choreographed and, and meaty, and it is so good. It ends with both of the suits taking such damage that the pilots have to flee, and there's this another one of my favorite shots in the whole series is basically the Gundams drawn basically as a background layer. They're like hyper hyper detailed, while Gato and Ko um, just dive out of the suits and then they start exploding um yeah nine and ten are probably the the i think episode two is the best overall episode but in terms of peak of like i'm really enjoying this nine and ten especially coming off eight is so good also is like man this i wish more of the show was like this this is really good yeah it just has that great like gundam naval combat kind of thing to it of these the tactics and strategies of what uh, gato and his fleet are doing and sort of creating all these different diversions all over the place so that the Earth Federation is split, trying to deal with it while they're having their naval review, and then he comes up on top of them and shoots the nuke down. Uh, just really, it's just really great, tense kind of action stuff that then culminates in, yeah, what really in many ways does feel like the climax of the whole show, which is Ko and Gato finally have their confrontation again, um, and their battle is so fierce that both of their Gundams are destroyed, and... I mean, you know, it's it's such a feels like the climax of the show that that's the whole initial like inciting incident for the plot is they're testing the Gundams and then Gundam GPO two is stolen and so then Ko must become the pilot of the GPO one because it's the only mobile other mobile suit that could compete with GPO two and then he has to go get it like that's the whole setup of the plot and here both it's concluded by both of the suits being destroyed um, and destroying each other. And so it, it does have this really great climactic feel. And there's a fantastic moment where, um, you know, they both have to escape their uh, Gundams. And as Ko's getting out, he looks up and just, like, sort of has this big intake of breath as he sees that Gato has gotten out at the same time. And they're, like, just staring at each other, face like, almost their helmets touching. They're so close. Um, and Gato says, like, your name is Udaki, right? I'll make sure I'll never forget it. And then he jumps away. Uh, that sequence is very good like that's the best and that's like the most they ever try to go for the rival ace pilot thing in uh yes. stardust memory and i wish that they had leaned more into that over the course of the show because it is uh some of the best executed that kind of rival ace pilot sequence you get um outside of like amro and char fucking sword fighting on albawaku it's so good and it's like because it, it's also in that fight you can actually see they very do do a good job of showing how ko has grown as a pilot to be able to fight gato mm -hmm. like there's this great moment that leads to like the finale of that fight where he realizes gato is not fighting with his left arm because it was disabled in the blast because like the the recoil was so huge gato has lost control of his left arm when he fired the blast and so he can't use that arm of his gundam and and ko uses that to like come in from that side and get him off guard and then win the upper hand and so it's just it's like well scripted it's well storyboarded it's well animated it's got the, the voice acting it's just it's all coming together and that should not be episode 10 of 13. I'm not sure how you could make that work as the, there's not even, a, it's not even anti-penultimate, anti-anti-penultimate episode. It's too early in the show for this to be happening. That yeah. would be like if Amuro and Char had their big cool sword fight and then there were five episodes of Gundam left. Like, what are you doing? This mm -hmm. is, this is it. This has to be kicking into the final phase. And yet it basically starts another arc after that. It's so weird. 
Yes, because we find out that this was only part one of the of Operation Stardust, and part two is like really weirdly complex. With like they tie this is where you get the colony jacking, and they like knock off the mirrors of the colonies because that's going to then degrade their orbit around each other, and so then they'll like bounce off each other, and then one of the colonies will then head towards the moon. But really what they want then is to have the people on the Luna colony on the moon shoot a laser that bounces off of one of the solar panels on the colony um, that will then create enough heat that will ignite some of the boosters on the colony because they didn't have enough energy to ignite the boosters. And then that will change the trajectory of the colony to then head towards Earth. And then once it gets past the point of no return on its trajectory towards Earth, then Gato has to get inside and then activate the rest of the ignition stuff, even though I don't know where you get the energy to ignite it there if you didn't have it originally because there's no colony shooting a laser at it. But he has the energy to ignite the fuel, then make the final adjustment for the colony to drop on Jaburo. And all that shit happens in those three episodes on top of all the shit that, like, Ko, our protagonist, isn't even involved in any of that. And it's, like, so overly complex a plan for what really just is we're dropping a colony on Jaburo, which is what their plan is. Uh, I feel like there are, like, five too many steps in getting you from episode 11 to we're just dropping the colony on Jaburo. Okay, I actually do have a question. Are they trying to drop it on Jaburo? Because in that last scene when Gato is making the course corrections and Nina is there, she assumes that and he says, no, I'm doing something else. You're the only one who's going to learn what Stardust actually was. But then there's no, like, what was the actual plan? Is it Jaburo? I, my assumption with that line was I thought he was saying more like, philosophically, he's not dropping it on Jaburo. He's dropping, dropping it on the ideology of the Earth Federation. I thought that that's maybe what he was, like, trying to get at. Okay. Because I think, because my assumption is that when Bosk Ohm fires the solar system for the second time, it it damages the solar of the space colony enough that it diverts it so that it lands somewhere in like North America. I forget where they say it like hits somewhere and like destroys the North American like grain farm, whatever the fuck they they said it did. Um, it's like all that shit is so compressed in the second half of episode thirteen um, that it is not particularly clear. Uh, yeah. I, so yeah I don't know like yeah because you're right I mean they never explicitly say where precisely it dropped and what the effects were and what they were trying to go for what Gato hoped to happen um, they never I mean really the show literally it. concludes with text on the screen trying to fill in the rest of the story frantically because they ran out of time yes um, yeah I mean episode 10 is the last good episode of Stardust Memory uh-huh. 11, 12, 13 are all different shades of bad 11 is not terrible it's got some nice moments in it because it is the classic we're gonna do a little coup and steal this thing because the federation is being bad and we have to get off of this base and like every gundam hits that note eventually um it's not a great version of that it's not a horrible version of it but then 12 and 13 like 12 is one of the most weirdly toothless episodes in all of gundam like nothing happens like it's Uh just they're kind of chasing it down ko doesn't really like fight anyone interesting like uh, basically Gato gets what he wants I, like nothing I just it's, it's just a it's a it's nothing it didn't need to be there yeah no it's the so I will I, on, on episode 11 one thing I'll say about that one is we do get the Lavian Rose back um which yes. is a good cameo uh and I do like that the Lavian Rose just has a real problem with Gundam protagonist going and stealing shit and escaping because that's exactly <laughs> what they do in the last arc of Double Zeta uh, that kind of kicks yep. off the end of that show um, and I, I do like that, and I like the Lavian Rose. 
Um, and I do like the ridiculous, stupid GPO-3 Gundam in, like, this giant just fucking... I don't even know what that thing is. They just put a Gundam inside of... I Like, I don't even know why they have the Gundam have, like, the rest of the Gundam body. It should just be a Gundam head, like the Devil Gundam, on this, like, big fucking weapon. Like, a gun, basically, with jetpacks on it, which is what they put the GPO-3 in. Um, but yeah, no, episode 12 is just a lot of vague political maneuvering because the other thing that's where it's like super overcomplicated is that you have uh Sima who is the weird Xeon pirate-ish lady that we like who's a very cool character because she's got a cool character design and like the her attitude is like fucking rad and I love her and she pilots the Gerba uh, Gerba Tetra which is a fucking fantastic uh mobile suit design uh and so she's very cool but they never really, I feel like, execute on that character all the way because she just gives some, like, vague, desperate attempts at backstory here as she, like, betrays um, the the General Delaz dude who's commanding uh, It Gato. makes no sense. Yeah, because she's made a deal with the Federation. So the Federation knows about the colony drop plan, um, and they've, like, maneuvered things in such a way that, like, they're like, oh, we're going to make it so our fleet doesn't get there in time, and the guy who's running Jabro doesn't... Un, like know that that's what they're doing because you have Jamatov. This is you have the one cameo of Jamatov from Zeta Gundam, the main dude from the Titans, um, and he's there. And he's like, we we are doing our own thing that will stop it. And then you find out that Basque Ohm then has the Solar System Two, and they're going to use the Solar System Two to try to disintegrate the, the colony. And so Sima knows that because she gave them all the plans, and so she's going to betray them and go over to the Federation. But then it all goes to shit and like Seema just dies in episode 13. And it's like, it's again, it's just like way overly complicated for what they're trying to do. And it just ends up feeling like the Seema character who was really promising and cool and interesting. And she would be a really interesting character. If they gave some more of that backstory. And I think there's something there. If you kind of paired her more effectively with Gato and showed that like the flaws in Gato's idealism that she is also a space noid who is maybe not going to benefit from what Xeon is trying to do, which feels like what they're implying, but they don't flesh any of that up, that out at all. She just like desperately says it, and then she gets killed uh, in like ten minutes after that point. Yeah, I agree with all that. It's it's it like the last two episodes feel like they're really they had no idea how to end it, and so they're throwing a lot of weird plot twists and turns at the wall to see what sticks and none of it does and then they don't really resolve any of the interesting parts of the show and then it ends because do you want to talk about a storm raging through the very well titled but very terrible finale of stardust memory yeah so that's where we get episode 13 of stardust memory so you've got um you know sema fights ko gato uh like destroys the solar system to control ship or whatever so the colony is still alive and then Gato boards the colony to go make the final adjustments to, I'm just going to say it's going to hit Jabiro, and that, you know, Gato just likes to be very poetic about shit, and that's what he's saying about, like, that's not really what we're landing on. We're landing on the heart of fascism and the control of the Earth Federation of Space, which is, of course, really Jabiro, because that's where the headquarters of the Earth Federation is. Um, and he there, goes there to do that. Meanwhile, Nina Purpleton... Uh, steals a ship in in Gundam fashion just steals a fucking ship out of the docking bay in one of these uh, big capital ships because I just I love that people really need to fucking 
like remember to lock the door uh, when they get out. You know, you got to make sure maybe like jiggle the handle when you get out to make sure that it locked all the way because fucking people in Gundam have a real problem with, with not locking mobile suits in like jet fighters and shit. Because she steals ones, goes to uh, Gato on the space colony, confronts Gato about Gato probably going to uh, end up killing millions of people by dropping the colony. Uh, although she doesn't seem as concerned about that as you'd expect a person to be. And then Ko shows up and that's where you get the whole, Nina, what are you doing? And she's like, I just can't stand watching both of you fight each other. I can't believe you just shot uh, Gato. Now I'm going to point a gun and shoot at you, Ko. And then we're going to leave. And then the colony is going to drop and then, and then the show is going to be over. And then we'll have a post credit scene where like it implies that we get in a relationship again. Even though I and Nina Purpleton have just done what feels like is one of the most just like despicable things I've seen a character do in a piece of fiction. <laughs> like it is so profoundly fucked up and comes absolutely out of nowhere. The, the like extent to which she goes um, for Gato here, a character that she has only had screen time with once when she saw him in episode one and made absolutely no reaction to recognizing him whatsoever. I mean, it's only like very vaguely alluded over the past few episodes that she kind of maybe still has feelings for this person um, that we never get a sense that they like, there's no romantic like tension or chemistry between those two characters. It doesn't make sense. I don't know what or how Gato and her met on the moon after the end of the one year war. Um, Apparently, also I don't when get I looked... the sense this is someone Gato would like. I don't like. No. There's nothing about Nina Purpleton that would attract a man like Annabelle Gato. Like for one, like how old would she have been? Like there's just like there's a bunch of questions of like this makes literally like it feels like a child telling you a and then and then Barney and Spider Man got together and they climbed the Empire State Building. Like it's like the weirdest fucking plot turn that makes just comes out of absolutely nowhere it's one of the worst plot twists i've ever seen in anything yeah it is truly dreadful and it just like takes nina who's a character i didn't particularly like and it just murders her like it is the dirtiest i've ever seen a character get done um and it's so bad it's just so bad and it makes nothing about it makes any sense um and when i was looking up stuff i found out that apparently nina is supposed to be 21 and she's 21 over the course of Stardust Memory, which that makes, makes no, no sense. sense. She's 21, and Gato's 25, apparently. No, no, he's not. No, he's not. I don't believe that. He's well, like late 30s. That's no. No, he's yeah. not. I'm not I, yeah. accepting that. So that's the, what their official ages are. I mean, it makes no sense because the one thing in the early parts of Stardust Memory that I do like about Ko and Nina's relationship is I like her like the being like the older more experienced one in the relationship and it's like a different dynamic you don't see typically in Gundam because usually if there's a romance in Gundam it's between two teenagers and it's like their true love they're destined like all that kind of shit um so it's nice to have like a setup that could lead to a more mature relationship they absolutely like throw that away um but like you have the sense that she's like her mid to late 20s and Gato is maybe in his early 30s but no she's 21 um, which means that they would have been to, they basically specifically say that, that they had met three years prior. So in 0080, right after the end of the one year war, Gato was on the moon and they met while she was 18. Um, which I, apparently that means that Nina is some sort of like child prodigy because if she's 21, that should mean that she just graduated college with like a bachelor's degree 
and she needs to have she's like a phd fucking lady working at anaheim designing like prototype extreme like new cool mobile suit technology is like that she is very accomplished for being 21 fucking years old um it's yeah so like none of that makes sense but that's what their official ages are supposed to be which but like but that's what matches up with the dialogue in the show because they do specifically say three years earlier and specifically say 18 so it's like it is it matches up with that they say in the show so that is their official ages but yeah apparently they were together they had some kind of relationship somehow uh i mean gato seems like a character that is effectively asexual to me like he seems like the only true love he has is independence for space noids and everything else be damned so i can't picture how he had a relationship with nina a woman who has no politics as far as we are expressed and that's like further reinforced by how she's used in this sequence where she's so devoid of ideology that when confronted with her past lover who believes in space noid independence to the extent that he's willing to kill millions of people by dropping a colony and co who's kind of a wet blanket that doesn't have much of an ideology but doesn't believe that you should kill millions of people for the sake of an ideological cause when faced with that choice she's just kind of like I, she's like the worst centrist possible. She's like, I choose both paths, which is neither space noid independence nor saving millions of lives. I choose the path where millions of people die. Both of you are going to die, um, but I'm going to try to keep you from killing each other for like five more seconds. Um, and the space noids aren't going to have independence because I'm not really going to help the space noid cause either because I don't get a sense that she believes in the Xeons or the space noids or any of that shit. I don't know what she believes in other than she doesn't want her two boyfriends fighting each other, which is the worst fucking motivation you could possibly give a character. I mean, it's, it's worse than, I was going to say this is like worse than the love triangle in twilight. And that's an insult to twilight. Twilight has a fairly well-developed love triangle. This is, this is just stupid. I mean, you can't do a love triangle as a plot twist. It just doesn't work. I don't think you could possibly do a love triangle as a plot twist. It is completely honest, like anathema to the concept in the plot dynamics of love triangles like or hate a love triangle dynamic in a plot and i think they can be done well and i think i've often seen them be done very poorly but but when done well they are done to create tension and drama over the course of the plot by developing the fucking love triangle it's like love triangles are supposed to be there and developed and established early in the plot of something so that you can evolve the love triangle over the course and get like all the tension and suspense you can get out of the love triangle setup here you just have a fairly normal relationship between nina and co it's not a great or compelling relationship but it's just like a romantic relationship between these two characters and then in the 11th fucking hour they decide to throw in a love triangle completely out of nowhere like you know blindsiding both the audience and your protagonist with it in the second half of the last episode um, and having her effectively choose the the character in the love triangle that she has had almost no screen time with at all. That is like just the, it's just, the, I can't, I can't comprehend how you would make that choice. I don't understand, um, you know, how you get to that point that that's the plot choice you've made is to do that. It It, it is so incomprehensible to me. Yeah. And if you, so let's, let me go back to my schema of the three things Stardust Memory is about. Because I think we would classify the Nina romance as the part of the coming of age plot, right? Yes. Like, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So this is where that falls apart entirely. Because basically Ko, because this is also, Ko has almost no dialogue in this final episode. Almost none. 
and like once he leaves the the i think his last line in stardust memory is to gato where he says you waited for me when he gets out of the colony and he never talks again and so the rest of this so like we never know how ko absorbs this thing with dina we never know how this like impacts his coming of age story we don't know how this affects him as a man we get in the final scene him getting out of prison and nina is there and she smiles and i guess we're supposed to assume they're in a relationship now but there is effectively no denouement no conclusion no wrap-up and if anything they like re-complicate it and then just end it in the coming of age story and that is just completely obliterated and i think it was clumsy before then but there were moments i liked like there's a little moment in one of the episodes where ko um nina makes fun of him for not eating his carrots so he goes and tries to eat carrots in private that's a cute scene that could work but like it holistically the coming of age story is completely obliterated by this right sean Oh, absolutely. And it's like the thing... So this is where we come back to what I said earlier about Ko's primary motivation being like his own sense of emasculation um, and his sense of like not being good enough. And it's like, it just feels so dark and gross to then take that character. And I mean, they do a cuckolding story. Like, that's what it is. It's like, and now your rival ace pilot that you've been trying to prove yourself against the whole time takes your fucking girlfriend. Like, that's what they do with the plot. And it's such a gross plot twist that's so unnecessary. And and then the conclusion of it just kind of sweeps all that under the rug. And it's the kind of thing where, like, if what they did was after this, you you know, whatever, the, the colony drops, all that shit happens. And then you cut to, um, it's like the Jamatov speech and he's saying, and they we're constructing the Titans because we have the threats and all that shit happens. And then you cut to... Um, with a ship uh, where all of our characters are now becoming Titans and putting on the jackets. And then Ko like walks out of the bathroom and he's dyed his hair blonde and Keith walks up and is like, Ko, like, what are you doing? What's going on? And he says, don't call me that name anymore. I've decided to live by a new life. Call me Jared. And he become, became, became Jared. <laughs> then it would be like, okay, because this is the origin story of a character like Jared Someone who has this unfounded belief in his own, like, con- like his own abilities as a pilot and all this shit, but really deep down is motivated by this sense of incompetence and emasculation to other pilots that is also really heavily fixated on his relationships with women. Like, that is the cocktail that is Jared Mesa from Zeta Gundam, um, who is a great bad, like, anti- like, a great bad guy, good antagonist character of that show. And if that's what they did at the end, I still don't think I would like the show. Uh, and, you know, obviously they wouldn't literally have him, like, actually be Jared, but be metaphorically a Jared. I like this idea. No, I like yeah. that Jared's backstory is he got cucked by an engineer. I think that's that's perfect. Because, <laughs> and like, again, if that's what you did and then have him became a titan, I still think that most of, like, the execution <laughs> along the way was rough as fuck and it would be so weirdly dark um, and, like, kind of inappropriate. But at least I could see, like, a thematic argument for what they're doing. But then to just have this weird thing where then Ko just gets so frustrated by everything that happens that he just kind of goes crazy and shoots wildly into the air. And he gets court-martialed for it because that, like, Bascom's ship he was, like, kind of vaguely shooting at, I guess. Um, and he gets court-martialed Doesn't for, like, a get... year. Oh, I thought he was court-martialed for stealing the Gundam on the Livia and Rose. It might be that. I think it's a combination of that and him, like, just kind of going crazy and shooting. They don't, like, it's okay. so haphazardly cut at this point that it's, like, just vague implication. Um, but, yes, he has this, like, kind of court martial 
which I think was, well, it was supposed to be for a year, but then it gets swept under the rug because it's like, but none of these events happen because we don't officially recognize them. So if none of this happened, he can't be court-martialed for it. And then he goes back to the training place. Apparently he's still a member of the fucking Earth Federation and Nina's there and they smile at each other. And I'm like, dude, if there is ever a good reason to break up with someone, it's probably for them to choose their ex-boyfriend over you as their ex-boyfriend is committing an act of genocide um, while you're trying to stop it. And she <laughs> points a gun at you and fires a fucking gun at you. Like, you gotta get out of that relationship, Co, because it's really not going good. Like, that's really... Like, relationship therapy is not going to fix the problems that you guys have. You really need to go... Um, it's really sad that Kelly died, but you got to get, like, someone else in your life because fucking hell, dude. Like, you should not be with Nina because what she does in episode 13 is fucking bad. It's bad. Uh, okay, so coming of age story. Real, like, that is the worst part of the show is it, it, it falls down so hard on that. Yeah. But it also really notably falls down on my second part of the schema, which is the rival aces story because that comes to a head in episode 10. But then in episode 13, they don't get a final fight. Like, when they get out of the colony, they do kind of clash a little bit, but it is mostly cut away from off-screen. There is no definitive resolution because the the colony laser goes off. Not the colony laser, but the, the solar system thing goes off. And it's just kind of limp at that point. It's not clear what they're fighting over. It's not clear why they would fight. Um, everything's fucked up. There's There's no real, again, sense of, like, co- digesting this information that he's been cucked by Gatto. Like, it's it's just the, the whole rival Aces thing comes to nothing, and it's super disappointing. Like, if Shar and Amaro didn't get a final fight, what the hell would you... You would be really mad. And one of the best things about Gundam is that that final episode does a really good job of resolving that. And it resolves... They don't have to die. Like, Shar and Amaro both make it out alive, but there is a very clear definitive... Like ending to their rivalry, which is uh, Amaro stabbed him through the through the helmet. He won. You know, there is nothing of that there. There is no resolution. Yeah, and it's and there can't be a resolution because Ko's character never comes to, like grows to that point of resolution. Right, he never is able to stand up and like and be an equal but opposite to Gato. He is always is like in fact he is in episode ten, and then they put him back down by doing the Nina shit, and so it makes him once again like inferior to Gato in this gross way um like this narratively really gross way um that then kind of robs his character of being able to have that Amuro Char style rivalry where the characters confront each other and both have their beliefs in their and what they're trying to fight for they both stand up for that and they both like grown to that point to have that confidence um which is kind of what you which is the dynamic the classic ace rival dynamic is have both of them represent whatever their like various politics or ideology are and then have them fight and shout at each other over it while they're fighting um that's the whole concept and they just kind of they do a lot of it in episode 10 and it's fun there and then they just like hit the rewind button and try it over again and they do it way worse the second time yeah also like the fight choreography in the brief glimpses of their little bout near the colony we get is really bad because they're both in these like giant mobile armors that are not that that can't fight yeah. And it's just awkward, and I don't... It's bad. I do like My the giant fuck-off beam saber that Ko has in his crazy Gundam thingy, though. It's it's good, yeah. And I do really love the design of Gato's insane giant um, mobile armor. It's very cool. I love when he sees it, he goes, it's like the spirit of Zeon, you know, built in steel, and it's so good. Yeah. yeah. Akio Otsuka, 
I want him to narrate my life. Um, okay, so my third part of the schema was the Gato side of the story. And this guy who is a Zeon true believer trying to fight for independence. I think it is the part of the show the show does best of these three. But it also falls flat, I feel like, in this final episode. Um, like, Gato not getting what he wanted, that's fine. And that's probably how this story... I mean, it is how it had to end because we know... Zeta happens and we know double Zeta happens and we know Haman Karn is out there willing waiting to kind of pick up the cause not because she believes in it but because she wants to be queen um but like when you talk about all the weird nihilism there's also something weirdly nihilistic about this that again I think they could have turned into something because I think if this were from Gato's POV and the ending of his story is that he sees the enemy become the full-blown fascists he always kind of believed them to be, and that's what defeats him, is very dark but very interesting. But really, we never, again, get a sense of like what Gato feels about his failures and everything because he just collects the remnants, and they do a kamikaze run, and that's it. And it's just a very anticlimactic ending for this really interesting character. Yeah, that it just kind of feels like it doesn't say anything about anything it just sort of just like stops um and it just doesn't it's why it's so unsatisfying as a conclusion is it doesn't feel like it resolves the tensions in the story between the sort of like anti-politics of ko in the life that he's led and the extreme idealistic politics of gato that also in some ways lead him astray because they are betrayed by sima and if they had done the SEMA side of the story better, could have maybe like poked some holes in like the perfection of Gato's idealism and shown that like the Xeon is not perfect either, and that he's maybe not considering the full consequences of some of the shit he's doing. Um, which you're, which is also another problem with the ending here is that they'd never really, I feel like, give you that like Shar's counterattack thing of maybe you believe in a lot of what Shar's fighting for, but you're also always going to cut back to Earth and see all the people that are going to die. For him to get the thing that Shar wants to get and you have to as a viewer like wrestle with the cost of what they are like trying to do and um Stardust Memory like a lot of the Gundams once you start moving into this kind of post-Tomino world I mean this is you know Victory Gundam still to come and that kind of stuff but we you start getting once other people other than Tomino start doing Gundam you get a lot more of this like weirdly kind of bloodless perspective of it where it's like you get to have all the fighting and the crazy military stuff but you don't get as much cutaways into the cockpits and watching people explode you don't get the cutaways to the people living in the colonies or living on earth that are going to be impacted by these acts of massive massive destruction um and that's another area where i feel like it just kind of takes the easy way out by allowing to really like kind of fully get behind gato partially because it just never bothers to develop in, in any kind of counterpoint to it at any point over the course of the 13 episodes yeah absolutely and it yeah it's it's especially weird coming after Shar's counterattack because this would have been the first Gundam thing to come out after the, well no you would have had War in the Pocket and then this yeah but like it feels like it should have learned more lessons from Shar's counterattack which also makes this whole story feel a little redundant because it is like, boy, we've had a lot of colony drop stories at this point um, between the original Gundam and Double Zeta does it and Char's Counterattack does it and then this one does it and this one like develops that idea the least. Um, I, I kind of wish Operation Stardust was something more interesting, you know? Um, but like, yeah, I, I it's just... Uh, because like, because Gato's like death... It does not have anything to do with Ko, so it doesn't tie into the rival aces thing. It doesn't reflect anything on Ko's coming of age. It doesn't really tell us anything more other than he's a true believer to the end, which I believe. But, like, 
yeah, it's just not interrogated or done anything interesting with. Like, frankly, his death scene kind of feels like they wrote a script without that, and then we're like, God, we forgot to close to tie up that loose end, so he flies into his ship and blows up. The end. Yep. Yeah. So, okay. I think it... So, yes, this is where I think Stardust Memory is one of those shows that I think is somehow less than the sum of its parts. Because mm-hmm. I think I can list so many good things about this show, yet as we analyze it, Sean, like, if you if you identify the three overarching things that it is about, it fails pretty badly on all of those. Holistically, I think it's kind of a failure, even though... What do I like about it? We've listed a lot of them. We've talked about it. It's phenomenally directed and animated. And it's got some individually really good episodes. But it is so all over the place. I mean, it's a show that does have some of my favorite Gundam episodes. But I also think episode 13 is the single worst episode of Gundam I've seen. In the stuff we've covered on this show, I don't think any Gundam show has a worse episode than A Storm Raging Through. Yeah, I would take a Cuckoo's Doan's Island any day over... Yes, like this, if I yeah. just think of the uh, let's just think of the other notably bad episodes like Cuckoo's Doan's Island actually is f- fucking fine it's not yes, bad. No. yeah it's, it's, it's yeah it's yeah. just a funny Tobino right. hates it yeah uh, but like Double Zeta has the one with like the the weird um, colony people moon, in the moon. Amazon or what yeah Moon Moon that's bad but it's not it's nowhere near this bad yeah Moon um, Moon is like at the, least a fun weird like Star Trek like what if Gundam did Star Trek uh, story yes. that like I enjoy yeah. even if it's not particularly well done. Yeah, Victory Gundam has the episode with the weird bikini models who attack um, Uso. That's that's pretty bad, but it's not. It's just a kind of blip on the radar. It's nothing like this. It doesn't ruin Victory. And Gundam. at least that has um, like some really fucked up, crazy psychosexual bullshit associated with yes. it. But even if like you think it's fucked up, at least it's like fascinating. Um, even if it's like not good. Yeah. Uh, G Gundam has the episode with the clown and the clown backstory, but that <laughs> one is so bad it's one. good. Um, yeah. that, that one is amazing And again The fate of G Gundam's plot Is not riding on the clown episode So it's a little different And then Gundam Wing I think has a lot of like I think Gundam Wing is pretty bland And, and boring in the second half But there's no individual episode of Gundam Wing I look at and I'm like that's the bad one um, No yeah with Gundam it's Wing it's like, like an overall Like impact of like Some poor narrative yes. choices um, That end up snowballing yeah. over the course of that show but you're right. It doesn't manifest in like a single episode that just feels it, it's like I think part of it was the storm raging through is just like it just feels like obligatory or something in a weird way for some of it where it's like they have these really weird narrative swings that feel like they come out of out of nowhere. And the rest of it is just sort of like really dull. Like we're just we're just like finishing it. Um, It doesn't have this like great sense of climax and resolution to it. It just kind of stops in in most of those kind of arcs and themes and stuff, vague themes that they've set up over the course of the show. And I mean, we're going to talk about yeah. uh, 8th MS team next time. And 8th MS team is the polar fucking opposite of this yeah, yeah. in that its final episodes, its climax is like the best of what that show is. It builds to something, you know? Yeah. And the, the yes, absolutely. Oh, 8th MS team, which I'm super excited about to watch. Like I actually uh, got the Blu-ray of that fairly recently because I was oh, like, cool. "Oh, if we're going to watch that, I want to actually get the the nice Blu-ray for it." Um, but yeah, with Stardust Memory, I think like the it is that thing where this episode is so bad in the way that it executes on the things that that Stardust Memory was building up 
is like so much of the theming and plotting of Stardust Memory feels like it's like punting for like a payoff later down the line. It's like, okay, well, you have this confrontation in episode two where Gato accuses Ko of like not believing in anything and says, well, what are you even fighting for? And Ko's kind of shaken by it. Well, that's going to be a cool idea that we can pay off later. And they just kind of kick it down the line and then they never really pay it off. And it's, I feel like that's true of all the real character relationships outside of Lieutenant Burning, who's obviously that's resolved in the episode where he's killed. But all the other stuff with like the, his rivalry with Muncho and the other pilots, his friendship with Keith, Keith's relationship with uh, Mora, um, any of that stuff, uh, like all the SEMA stuff just sort of like fizzles out because it felt like they kept on punting. There's like, we'll explain what this like weird enigmatic lady's deal is in a later episode and they just kick it down the line. And by the time they get to it, they're like, oh, well, she just is like a weird traitor and we don't have time to get into her backstory, even though it seems like she'd be pretty cool. Um, and so then we just have to kill her. And it just feels like every single element here over the course of Stardust Memory, they kicked a lot of stuff down the line to be able to do some like fun episodes in the moment and have some good action and that kind of stuff. But then once it came time to actually finally pull off all the stuff they had kicked down the line, they had three episodes left and had no idea what to do with it. And so then it's like, well, let's just make Nina fall in love with Gato because that'll be shocking. And then, and then it's over the end. Yep, it's not good. Um, so, a couple other thoughts okay. uh, as we conclude. Well, okay, we said that's the worst episode. Is there a worse Gundam character than Nina Purpleton? At least in the stuff we've talked about so far. Okay, in the stuff we've talked about so far, that that limits it. Um, uh, I don't think so. I'm trying to think off the top of my head, like who would even be in the running and i just like i don't think there is there's there's characters i'm lukewarm on but no one who like is uh, she's nails on a chalkboard for most of this show i mean it's sexist and bad and and backwards but also just like a bad character to watch she it just feels like they don't have a consistent characterization for her because there are moments in episodes where i like her just fine and then it feels like the episode after that they just she turns into a totally different person um, which is which like lends to that weird Victorian like hysterics kind of element of her character that then in the last four episodes just goes into overdrive um, and it's completely ridiculous and yeah like off the top of my head I mean off, off, honestly off the top of my head I can't even think of another character that I'm like this is like a really bad Gundam character I don't, who else who else is like in that running Gundam's usually really God. good with its characters yeah I mean Gundam Wing I, I don't like hero and some of the Gundam pilots suck, but like they don't suck like this. No, yeah, so. like hero Yui annoys me, but he's not on the level of you know Purpleton. Like he's just like a dull character archetype done dully, but he's not yeah. like actively frustrating. Like the thing we will talk about a Nina Purpleton esque character in some future Gundam stuff that I can think of, where it is a character where it feels like the character actively gets in the way of things that the show could have done well. Um, but they've made such poor choices with the character and have changed the character's characterization multiple times for the sake of plotting in weird ways that just makes them incredibly annoying to watch. There are characters like that in Gundam. We just haven't encountered them yet. Yeah. So, okay. And, and on that note, I have a line in my notes that just says, why can't women be pilots? And this is a big problem I have with Stardust Memory And I know it starts to radiate out into Gundam from here, and it bothers me. Stardust Memory is the first Gundam work that does not have women flying mobile suits. The original Gundam has it in plenty of places, including um, 
um, Sela starts flying the the core fighter, or um, what's it called the the Gundam parts? The yeah, she 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 also pilots the Gundam multiple times, but yeah, she flies right. the G yeah. fighter. Yeah, yeah, the G fighter. Um, Zeta Gundam. There are frankly more women piloting suits than men in that show. Yeah. Double Zeta. There's women all over the place. You've got fucking Haman Karns the villain. Um, Shars counterattack. You've got it. F ninety one. You've got it. It is a consistent thing. Um, War in the pocket. There are two main pilots in that show. One of them is a dude. One of them is a lady. This is like a consistent thing in Gundam that there is not in the in this like future space military. There are probably more men doing combat stuff, which like reflects current militaries. But it is not segregated that way. Women are out there flying, you know, planes and mobile suits, and that is just a totally normalized thing. It is not like Sela gets in the Gundam and is like, oh, and Bright's like, a woman in a Gundam? What the hell? Like, it's just a normal thing in this world. And then you hit Stardust Memory, which is this weird brick wall where suddenly there are no women in combat. They are exclusively engineers and secretaries, and everyone in a military uniform is a dude. And it is really, really conspicuous when you hold it up next to all other Gundam. If you just hold it up to, like, you know, anime and media, you might not notice it as much. But in the context of Gundam, this was the first one that did that. And in 90s Gundam, that starts to sadly kind of become a thing. Um, After War Gundam X does not have major um, female pilot characters. Um, uh, Gundam Wing has no major female pilot characters. All the Tomino stuff in the 90s still does. Victory Gundam and Turn A all over the place because that's how he writes characters but and my understanding sean is that it, it's also a thing in some other future gun and we're going to talk about and it bothers me and i don't like it yeah because i will say this, so because there is so you do have sema who does pilot uh the mobile student stardust memory but like that almost like highlights the exception because she's not a normal military pilot right? and it's, she's like and it's only pilot. briefly in the finale yeah. yeah so she's the only one and the fact that she's the exception makes it feel like it's this weird exception yeah you don't have women who are like pilots in the military um that are amongst the normal like crew and stuff like that uh yeah and it's frustrating like it's not like every gundam thing from now on like there are definitely 2000s gundam shows that have women piloting just fine like you have gundam seed and seed destiny both have female pilots but you do have yeah here and there it becomes like a thing where it feels like off the top of my head it's like kind of every other one you end up having that kind of like there might be one or two women who pilot it, but generally speaking, they're not like mixed in with the general cast of characters. Um, and it is frustrating and, and it is particularly stark and Stardust memory because it is doing like this whole top gun thing. And as a result of that, it is having not only are there not women piloting the good, the mobile suits, but you have a lot of male characters who are like notably sexist. And that's like a like specific character trait that they have. And it's like, feels like it's, tacitly reinforced by the fact that women are either are engineers or support personnel and men are pilots and so then and then men like you know then Moncha like takes pictures of um nina and like puts it up in his cockpit when she's not looking and all this kind of shit um and it's just gross and the show doesn't provide any counterpoint to that like i said like it would have been fine if that was just a thing in episode three when that character was introduced but it's a consistent recurring thing with him and some of those other male pilot characters yeah, and it's just, I think it's especially conspicuous because this is the only Universal Century show yeah. where that's a thing. It's just the only one, and it is stark in that it just, like, you look at the backgrounds of scenes and everything. It visually presents a gender-segregated military 
which is not what Universal Century Gundam does. It's just that is not how that works in, in the rest of the works. Like, it's, it's a little imbalanced, and there are other things we can talk about that are problematic around gender, but, like, that's just not one of them. And it's very weird that Stardust Memory just feels like it's a little out of continuity almost in how stark it is about this, you know? Yeah, I agree. It's, it's frustrating. Um, yeah. One of the many frustrating things about this, this show. Yes. So what else do we want to say about this show before we finish for today, Sean? I mean, I, again, once again, I do want to shout out like some of the stuff that it does particularly well. Like even if it, and and again, I think my feelings on Stardust Memory will ultimately go back to how I felt after my first watching. I think I'll have forgotten a lot of the middle of the show and mostly remember it for this very bad ending because the ending leaves such a bitter taste in your mouth. But there is so much good stuff along the way, and and it is a very notable entry it's got some like killer gundam designs like the gpo1 and gpo2 are great great gundam designs the gerba tetra um is a really great zeon mobile suit design fantastic music some really fun character moments in action and it is a i think it is a show worth watching if you are a fan of gundam but it is it, it is certainly like not to the level of most of what gundam as a franchise has to offer yeah I want to shout out some of the voice acting. Um, we already have sung the praises of Akio Otsuka. He's great in everything. He's really good as Gato. That's the Gundam character he was born to play. Um, I love Akio Otsuka's father, Chikao Otsuka, who's also a notable voice actor, is in this. He plays Captain Synapse, and he's mm-hmm. so good. I love that voice. Um, I really love Masashi Sugawara as South Burning. Um, I mean, the names... This is one of the best uh, set of names for a non-Tomino production with, like... Anna Velgato, Nina Purpleton, Afar Synapse, South Burning, Chuck Keith. I mean, it's it's very good. Chuck Keith um, is like he like I want Chuck Keith and Slager Law to hang out together because they are the two American <laughs> <laughs> Gundam characters. Yes, yes, and I actually hadn't realized uh, Kelly Lazner, who is the Kelly we've been talking about, the the warrior Von Braun. That's a uh, Tesho Genda, which I probably should have recognized. It's Tesho Genda. But um, I'm like, that's why I really liked that character, because Tesho Genda is in that same like generation as Akio Otsuka and Shigeru Chiba, where he's in everything and he's always great. Yeah. Um, so yeah, really good acting. And and then I think there is the fun like historical thing of hearing a pre-Vegeta Ryo Horikawa uh-huh. as Ko, because Ryo Horikawa has like pretty heavily been typecast after Vegeta, and in fact... He's prolific, but not as prolific as a lot of people of his generation, in part, I think, because Vegeta is a... He's recording Vegeta lines probably every week of the year since yeah. whenever he started that. Um, same as, like, Masako Nozawa does not do a ton outside of Goku, obviously. Um, but, like, you know Ryo Horikawa for, like, gruff, you know, bad dude Vegeta. And he is one of the best. He is so good at that, and he always has been. And you look at some of his other roles, and there's some other similar stuff like that. But this is this early role from him where he is playing this, like, young... Oh, actually, this wouldn't be pre-Vegeta. Vegeta was 1989, so I'm a little off. But, like, this is early in that, and he's playing this, like, young kid, you know, coming-of-age thing. And it is just really funny for me, as someone who knows him through Vegeta, to hear him be so... um like trying to sound like he is so young and innocent it's so funny yeah and i think he does a very very good job in stardust memory and it's a really good performance yes the, my favorite thing about it though is now yo horikawa because because again stardust memory is pretty popular in the fan base um so that means that they bring these characters back for the video games a lot 
Um, so that means that Horikawa is now uh, in a hell where he has to, every three or four years, a new big Gundam game comes out that has all these characters in them. And you like Gundam Versus, which just came out on PS4, uh, the new one. Uh, and he has to go do voices for it. And it's like, now it's like, I mean, how old is he? He's like in his 50s or like early 60s, maybe. Um, he's 62. Yeah, so he's, he's a 62-year-old man who now has to play this like 19-year-old uh, Ko Uraki. And it's like, and it's still good because it's still, you know, Horikawa. But he maybe doesn't sound quite as uh, innocent as he does in this no. original recording from 91. Yeah, for some reason, I mean, I, I knew what year Dragon Ball Z aged, but, aired, but like in my mind, this was pre-Dragon Ball Z, and it's not. So it's even funnier to me to know that contemporaneously, he was in the booth one day for Ko, and then went and did Vegeta. That's mm-hmm. hilarious to me. And that would have been like, this would have been like the Frieza saga years. Yeah. You know, which is which is the peak of like crazy Vegeta. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but no, I mean, it's obviously it's a very good cast. It always is. Um I really I, like the music in this one. Oh yeah, the music's always good, but it's it's great. Music is fantastic. Now I'm I'm looking at a, the list of characters, and I now am coming to discover, Jonathan, that Nina's dad is named Peter Purpleton, which is that's so good. Such that's that's maybe in the running uh, for among the best of all Gundam names. Peter Purpleton is very good. It's a name you can't say without getting a smile on your face. No, that's that's in the same like realm as uh, Ramba Rao's dad, Jimba. Yeah, I mean Jimba that's Ralph. pretty good. Yeah, yeah Peter Purpleton. Peter Purpleton. <laughs> oh my god, so good. It, I, it sounds like for this one they like you know Tomino didn't work on this show, but I have to imagine like they called him up and said, "Hey, we need character names," and he flipped open a notebook and was like, "All right, I've got you covered." Because I assume that's what Tomino does in his free time is he takes a notebook out of his pocket and just writes down silly names. Yes, yeah, the, the, and he, he, you don't know if you're going to get a South Burning or a Chuck Keith. Um, it is the oh, like it's... contrast between the fairly normal names and then the Peter Purpletons of the world. Uh, that makes it so good. So good. All right. Um, anything else to say about Stardust Memory? I, I'm really glad we did this. I, I enjoyed talking through this series. This was a good one, I think. Yeah, this is one that I had been looking forward to doing a podcast on. Because obviously, like, in when I forever ago, before Jonathan, the before time when you had never even seen a Gundam, and I've been thinking about, I want to do a Gundam podcast because I want to talk about Gundam. There were like a handful of Gundam ones that like were specifically, these are the ones I really want to talk about. It was all the ones I really liked. And then it was the few that like I didn't like but had things I wanted to say about. Um, and obviously, you know, Mobile Suit Gundam and Turn A Gundam and Zeta and Double Zeta and Shards Contract, all those were in the I really want to talk about them and like them. This was um, the first of the I don't particularly like this show, but I really want to talk about it. In a way I didn't necessarily feel about Gundam Wing, but I really felt about this. I wanted to do this podcast. It's been a long time. Absolutely. Coming. And next time, Sean, I feel like this is like getting, this is the dessert. This is when we get our cake uh-huh. and we get to dive into it. 8th MS Team is just, mwah. it is, if you have not seen 8th MS Team, you are in for the treat of all treats. That's all I can say. Absolutely. And that will, you know, 8th MS Team is the last of the original run of OVAs. Um, that takes us, it's the last of the Universal Century OVAs. And then after that, we have to look towards... Gundam Seed and moving on towards a, a, the bold new century of Gundam. But we've got some more just crazy, super high production value bullshit. Um, some crazy Vietnam War-ask Gundam uh, next time on the show when we look at Mobile Suit Gundam 08 MS Team. 
Tonight. Oh, tonight.